0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: You're now tuned into the Pod Awful, Awful Channel. Pod Awful. Awful. Bi Quarterly Women's Social Club. The days and Convicted. Party Radio. Showcase. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Boom. Awful Flips. Pod Hot Awful. Awful. Dot. Dot. Net. Net.
2: I control of your TV set. TV set.
1: support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web
3: at stitcher.com slash booth.
1: enter through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide Victims
4: yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI.
1: One killer. This is what the subject's teeth look like. Have you ever seen blood on the moonlight like, well?
5: William, you're gonna make yourself sick or get yourself killed.
1: Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One. Hunter. I'm gonna find you. Damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Man under.
4: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me from a maximum security facility is Dr. Rob St. Mary. Would
3: you care to leave your home phone number or um, maybe a pack of gum?
4: We're also joined this week by our fellow Geek Juice contributor,
5: the Mysterious Mr. X. Hello, folks, and thanks for having me. And I'm here to deliver absolutist comments about this film, because if one does what God does enough times, one becomes as God is.
4: This week, we're looking at the 1986 film from Michael Mann... Manhunter. Based on the 1981 book from Thomas Harris, the film stars William Peterson as Will Graham, a former investigator for the FBI who's brought back to help find the serial killer Francis Dollarhide, played by Tom Noonan. Will has a heightened sense of empathy and the ability to get into the mind of the killer. This is the same technique that he used to catch Dr. Hannibal Lecter, here played by Brian Cox. As we go along, we'll be talking about the other incarnations of Hannibal Lecter and we'll be getting into spoilers for For those films as well as for Manhunter, so please be warned. So, Mister X, as
5: our guest,
4: when was the first time you saw Manhunter, and what did you think, sir?
5: Well, I actually saw it for the first time on video. I'm afraid for some reason I couldn't convince my mother to take me to see the movie about the serial killer. I kept telling her it's from the guy that makes Miami Vice, you know that show with those two guys you keep drooling over. She's like, no, 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 can't have it, can't have it. So unfortunately, me and my cousin who were gigantic Michael Mann fans had to wait for it on video. Horrible pan and scan, but you know what? It was worth it. And it became one of these stylistic templates of what I admire about filmmaking as a craft. I really enjoyed the film, although I got more resonance out of it as the years went by, was able to read into it more. It taught me a lot about how as much as performances and music and shots are part of the film the artistic style of the director can be just as important a statement in the film as all the other elements
3: i saw this one out of order so i was 12 when silence of the lambs came out in 1990 so i saw that first and really loved silence of the lambs and then i saw this i think when anchor bay got its mitts into it and i think they put it out originally on a widescreen vhs sometime in the 90s and then they put out the director's cut and the theatrical cut uh, double disc limited edition that I watch this on again. So I've had it for many years, and I've seen it over those years. And I have to say that for me, it's kind of this battle, and we'll get into this later, between Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs for which one I like better in terms of the, uh, the Thomas Harris films.
4: I also saw this on VHS. I think I saw this probably like 88 or so. Really enjoyed it. I enjoyed just how quiet it was, but it seemed to just um, kind of, put its hooks into me, and uh, stayed with me for a long time. Then when Silence of the Lambs came out, I was working at the movie theater at the time, and everyone was just so gaga about Silence of the Lambs. I'm like, you know there's a first movie to this, right? You know that this Hannibal Lecter character shows up in another movie, right? And he's played by Brian Cox, and everyone's like, who's Brian Cox? And <laughs> I imagine today, if you talk about Brian Cox, you're still probably going to get some quizzical looks. You might be able to relate to some people to him through some of the x-men films or the born identity films or the red films but still people are going to be looking at you kind of cockeyed but uh, you mentioned anthony hopkins to people and they'll know exactly who he is so but let's talk a little bit more about the plot of manhunter it's a fairly simple plot really when you break it down into its absolute core i mean it's Will Graham being talked into coming back into the FBI by his kind of mentor, Jack Crawford, who shows up in the rest of these Hannibal films. And he's kind of torn between getting his head back into this horrible space that it was in when he was hunting killers before and enjoying his life down in Florida with his wife and adopted son, Well, maybe adopted, maybe just kind of a stepson, or maybe... I I don't know. Do you guys think that he's the kid is supposed to be Graham's son himself? I I think he's
5: supposed to be kind of Molly's kid and and son by proxy. I kind of got the impression he may not have been a son by birth, simply by the casting of the two blondes with uh, peppered-haired Peterson. And there's that scene later where he's kind of being
4: protective of his mother and asking the questions about when Will went into the psychiatric hospital. So I like the way that we kind of get... Will's backstory as the film goes along and find out just how much he was messed up in the past and why he's kind of afraid to walk this line again between being an investigator and being this kind of empath when it comes to putting himself in the mind of the killer. I like that we get early on in the film. I think one of the first, the first scene itself actually is dollar going in and shining a light on I believe it's Mrs. Leeds, and we see from his point of view what's going on. And then just a few scenes later, when Will does agree to take on this journey, he reenacts the entire thing. And just the way that he walks in the steps of the killer and then eventually puts himself in the mind of the killer, I find very fascinating.
5: It's become a cliche now, but at the time, that becoming the killer, getting the killer mindset was kind of new. It's something we're very, very familiar with between the influence Manhunter had on a whole generation of filmmakers. It's almost like a 70s anti hero in a way. And that's what he's trying not to be. He's trying to be the 80s good dad. But the character himself is kind of walking that dark line. And yeah, the way he was able to, like, that recreation sequence where he sees, in a way, what he perceives that the Tooth Fairy is seeing, I thought was fascinating and also showed. Yeah, he get he slips into the skin so easily that he's scared that he can't get back out. I think that was actually the tagline of the movie. Once you get inside the mind of a killer, make sure you can get out or something like that.
3: A lot of the character of Will Graham is actually based on a real person, in part. The guy at the FBI who started the profiling unit back in the early 70s is a guy by the name of John Douglas. And I interviewed him, and he does a commentary track, I believe, on the Criterion version of the Silence of the Lambs DVD. And Douglas talked about how he was able to catch criminals and specifically murderers looking at certain things that were left around scenes, certain places specifically where the wounds were on people. And I remember when I interviewed him because he gave a lecture when I was working up in Saginaw. He had given a lecture in Midland as part of this lecture series. And he was talking about how if someone has trauma to the face and upper neck area, that that's someone taking it out on the persona of that person, that someone who was an intimate, who would have known that person. And he goes, that's where you want to look for someone who was close to them. He goes, if you're just a random, you know, you're just killing a random person. It doesn't really matter sort of how you do the job. But if you're going to, you know, pummel someone in the face, you know, repeatedly or knife them and, you know, and take it out on, on their actual persona, then that's, that's a big clue. So he would go in there and he would open these files of these murders and they'd be like, how did you figure these out? And he goes, it's right here. You know, like he would sort of explain the psychology of scenes and the psychology of, um, of, of the wounds and whatnot. And so a lot of that stuff that Thomas Harris uses, I believe, Uh, in the books for the character of Will Graham and then later some of the other uh, characters in in the later films in the series comes out of the work that John Douglas actually did setting up the profiling unit.
4: Yeah, his book Mindhunter is absolutely fascinating where he talks about kind of his whole career in the FBI and just that he was able to... look at things from the criminal point of view instead of from the cop's point of view. Some of the the things that he talks about seem like they're fairly simplistic today, but then there are so many things where he'll talk about a crime that he has gone to see and then the profile that he creates based on the crime scene and just how close he gets with so much of this. And he tries to explain that it's not magic, that there's nothing supernatural about this, that he has a logical way that he constructs this persona of the criminal – based on all of the things that he's seeing at the scene and it is just absolutely wonderful he's also one of the first guys to go into prisons and interview serial killers and get into their mind that way both through questionnaires and then just through one-on-one uh, questioning which is kind of similar to what we see with the will graham character interviewing Lecter, and more specifically with the jody foster character interviewing Lecter, the clary starling in silence of the lambs so it's it's interesting to see his influence on this and you're right he, he does have the commentary on silence of the lambs but he definitely he and thomas harris had had many conversations before harris wrote um, red dragon mr x you had mentioned the idea of the way that this film is shot and really i don't think that you can separate the way that the film is shot from what is happening on screen what is happening with the plot there's it's just tied together so much i mean you can get a director where it just feels so plain and you're not necessarily even paying attention to what's going on. And then you can get other directors where it's so ostentatious that you're being pulled out of the story because of the way it's being almost over directed. I'm thinking of like a, a Brian singer at times, but here, the two really go hand in hand. And even from the beginning, some of these shots that we see are just so lovely. I mean, the, the way that it's framed when Jack Crawford, the Dennis Farina character is talking to Will Graham, the William Peterson character at the very beginning. And they're sitting on this log in front of the beach and you see the Farina character, his back to the audience. And he's just kind of silhouetted there as he's talking to, to Peterson, and then just a few shots later, you get almost the exact same framing, but it 's him also with his back to the audience uh farina 's character in the same position, and then he's talking to Graham's wife's uh, character, Molly. And it's just interesting to see how he's – the two scenes are accomplishing the same thing. He is trying to talk these people into or placate these people, trying to get what he wants. And I love that man is is framing these things the same way. And the colors – I love the use of the colors in the film, especially the cool blue scenes that we get with Graham and Molly – towards the beginning when they're in bed together and just the, the use of color and the use of the framing and everything is just so gorgeous. I mean, even when it comes to these horrible uh, murder scenes, they're still filmed so beautifully. The, the way that when Graham goes into that bedroom the first time and turns on that light and we see the red everywhere from the blood, it's still just this, really gorgeous scene and i love the way that it's framed when peterson is looking at the crime scene and it's just this stark white wall behind him just with i believe a vase of flowers to the lower right hand corner and it's just you know so stark but it's great because we should be paying attention to him and that's the only thing in the frame that we have to pay attention to and i i think that man does a really wonderful job of of using his style to
3: tell this story. You know what it really reminded me of in terms of the lighting? is that the film is very bright for a movie that's supposed to be a crime film, serial killer, thing like that, you would think, and we'll talk about this later, a lot of really, I mean, gothic elements, really dark, a lot of deep shadows, things like that. It's not that. As a matter of fact, as I was watching this, I was more reminded of Dario Argento's Tenebrae, which is white walls, really bright. It's like, the almost negative of what you would expect in a, a a crime film or a horror film in that way.
4: I was very appreciative that when he came into the bedroom, yes, it's a little dark when he's going up the stairs, but when he gets into the bedroom, he actually turns on the light. And that's one of the things that always gets me when I'm watching like these crime procedural shows, such as a CSI, which I know we'll also be talking about later where the detectives are going into these crime scenes and they're using flashlights. And it's like, did they cut the power to this place already within six hours? That was the <laughs> was the electric bill not paid? Go over and turn on a fucking light. What is your problem? Oh, you
5: know exactly what the problem is in moments like that. The director wants to be able to shoot with the flashlights, catching all the the ominousness and having those light trails. Whereas, man, he's already he already knows that he can make the mundane fascinating visually. I distinctly remember on was it the Anchor Bay one? But they had an interview with his visual consultant. I think his name is Guzmano Cesareti or something like that, who was hired specifically to figure out color schemes, to figure out particular framing opportunities, to figure out... He, he kind of had overreign over like almost every other department. Like He would explain to the set directors, this should look like this, this should look like that. These color choices are the ones we'll use. And this is a man trope, because people who know Miami Vice know... They had some unwritten rules about that show for, like, the first three seasons, no earth tones. These are, like, specific choices Man makes. And Man is also one of those directors who I feel, in his head, he's telling the whole movie without dialogue. The dialogue and everything else is just accentuating his story that he's telling you visually. He's almost a silent filmmaker, minus his incredible use of music, of course talking about this stark white that we
4: have when Will is looking at this crime scene and kind of getting into the mind of the killer, then that's kind of contrasted for me just a few scenes later where we have a television screen where he's looking at the home movies of the Leeds family. And the framing on that is just so wonderful as well, where the the TV that he's looking at, we're seeing him from kind of an old, almost an over-the-shoulder shot from the TV. And he is only in maybe like one quarter of the screen, and the TV, the back of the TV, which is essentially a black box in, in, from this angle, is three quarters worth of the frame. So, I mean, there's the whole Nietzschean thing about looking into the abyss, and he is definitely doing that at this point. I just love that framing where it's just black on three quarters of the frame and him looking at this film, which we don't see a whole lot of, but him running through the whole idea of what happened when Dollarhide was in the killing scene, what happened when he was doing this, and just the way that he talks through what must have been going through the mind of the killer. What are you dreaming? That's something you can't afford for me
1: to know about, isn't it? God, she's lovely, isn't she? It was maddening to have to touch her with rubber gloves on, wasn't it? I found talcum powder on her leg, but there wasn't any talcum powder in the bathroom. The talcum powder came out of a rubber glove as you pulled it off to touch her. You took off your gloves to touch her, didn't you? Didn't you, you son of a bitch? You touched her with your bare hands, and then you put your gloves back on. But while your gloves were off... Did you open all their eyes so that they could
4: see you? That's the first time that we really see him make one of these intuitive
5: jumps right. where he can talk about what he thinks the killer was thinking. That one scene also is a textbook example to people out there who don't understand the difference between when you watch a film widescreen or a pan and scan. Because when I first watched that on VHS that framing threw me off at first. When I saw it widescreen, it suddenly made more sense because, you know, when you were doing pan and scan for VHS back then, more often than not, unless something was happening completely off screen, they just plunked it right in the middle, and that's it. That's what you get. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up the widescreen
4: because when I think of Michael Mann, <laughs> this is just an aside. When I was working at Blockbuster, one of the first VHS tapes to come out that was a popular film that was letterboxed was Last the Mohicans, which is another Michael Mann film. And you would not believe how many people would come into the store demanding their money back for their rental because they weren't seeing half the movie because there was
5: these two big black bars on the f- <laughs> No, <laughs> on I the could totally understand it because I managed a blockbuster, too. And I got oh, a whole God. generation of people to, to understand. No, no. Trust me. You want that one that says widescreen for these certain movies. You're going to miss half the movie if you don't have it. I remember when we had uh, – I gave them a perfect example, which was North by Northwest. I was like, you've got to see this in its original format. Just, It's a classic film. You, you, when you work at a blockbuster, sooner or later, you get your people who start to trust your judgment once they start figuring out what you've recommended to them because you, know, you get those regulars who just come in. What's good? <laughs> After a while, they start picking up on certain cues. You start picking up on their cues. I, one of the things I was most proud of was getting more people to start actually tolerating those black bars to understand there's a reason for this. Not everything can be Miami Vice, where Michael Mann just rewrote how you use the TV frame for the four by three. Sometimes you got to have the six by nine. First time I showed somebody a. Uh, I got somebody to check out the uh, widescreen version of Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and they thought it was an entirely different movie. I used to have little cardboard pieces of
4: of, <laughs> uh, of uh, screen, basically, where it'd be like, "This is a television screen, and this is widescreen," and would lay one over the other and be like, "See how you're missing so much on either side?" So, yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting I hate there. The so,
5: thirty-two inches on my TV, I want to use them all.
4: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, man's use of the widescreen is definitely in full effect here, and just he has so many of these interesting ways that he's framing stuff, and I love the way that he has frames within frames. And I guess we should probably talk about the way that uh, Hannibal Lecter is shot in oh, here. Yes. I mean, there's <laughs> I mean, there's so much <laughs> talk about telling the story without words. Another stark white set that we have. I mean, the the black of Brian Cox's hair, the color of his eyes, everything is just pops off the screen because he's against this stark white background as he's in this prison cell. Such a, a a distant cry from where we're going to see Hannibal Lecter in the future. But in here, it's this so sterile environment, and he is so serene so often that any kind of little movement, any kind of emotion that he brings to his performance just kind of pops off the screen even more, which really kind of contrasts with the, the outfit that uh, William Peterson is wearing in here, where it's, it's very much that Miami Vice kind of thing, oh, yeah. you know, the the darker sports suit, the darker uh, coat with the green tie and all this. I mean, it was uh, it, it was a pretty hip look that he had going on in there. But I love the way that we have these frames within frames as we see Brian Cox between bars and then reverse shot and we see Will Graham behind bars just to kind of say how close these two men are
3: love the framing of both of them with the bars i sort of see that as they're both sort of in prisons of their own making one he gets to walk around and is investigating and the other is literally locked in a cell
5: as the scene transitions and you start feeling Lecter starting to work his hooks back into will the weird way of the framing starts to reach the point of who's really the free one in this situation it's a real subtle thing for me but the way that the last shot in particular, as Peterson is desperately trying to get out of there, and then the camera uh, tilts back to uh, Brian Cox when he says,
1: The reason you caught me, Will,
6: is you're just the You want the scent?
5: Smell yourself. It feels like at that moment, Lecter's the free guy. <laughs> <laughs> and Graham is the one that's in a prison, but it's a prison of his of his mind as opposed to a physical prison, because as we see later with Lecter, he's about as free as a prisoner can be when all he needs is a phone call and a pack of gum. He makes so few movements, you know, and it, I, I think that it almost kind
4: of ties into um, what we're, we're going to see later on when we finally see Francis Dollarhide and he takes his coworker to see that tiger mm. Kind of feels very similar to me in that Lecter is this tiger, you know, this this ball of energy that could strike out at, at any time. And he, you know, I know the tiger's uh, knocked out, but it's almost like Lecter is that same beast and he could reach out with his claws whenever he wants to. It just takes one
5: moment of provocation for him to do that. Doesn't he literally only raise his voice twice in the entire film um, when he calls for the guard and uh, the little prodding uh i always like to think it's psychologically as Lecter is poking the scar that he left on graham's stomach <laughs> when he's going do you know how you caught me well do you know how you caught me
4: and i love how quick he is when it comes to the cutting and the pacing of the lines and everything you want to know how he's choosing them don't you i thought you might have some ideas
1: why should i tell you you get to see the file in this case and there's another reason pray tell I thought you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me? Well, you had disadvantages. What disadvantages?
4: You're insane. Quick, quick, quick with his dialogue rather than, you know, this kind of more laconic delivery that we're going to get with Hopkins later on.
3: You get to the file on this case.
4: And there's another reason.
1: I'm all ears. I thought you might enjoy the challenge find out if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for then by implication you think you're smarter than I am since it was you who caught me no I know I'm not smarter than you then how
3: did you catch me you had disadvantages
1: what disadvantages
3: you're insane yeah, I like the way that
4: he is so quick witted, and just the way that they pace that scene is is very nice. I mean, he's only in the film for just a few minutes, but every minute that he's on screen is just you're captivated by it's him. It's gold, in yeah.
5: my opinion. I, I I don't feel a single false note from Cox's performance in that film. He dominates in my opinion. He's hovers over the whole film like Kaiser Soze does in *Usual Suspects*. You never really see the guy until you know what's going on, but his presence permeates the film, and you always feel him kind of nagging in the back of Will Graham's head, like, come with us, one of us, one of us.
3: <laughs> a, a Similar to that, I would say, is, is Harry Lyme in The Third Man. You know, he's always in the background. He's there, you know. And getting into it with the three of them, uh, the, the three main: B, Will, and Lecter, and then uh, Dollarhide. To me, there's a there's a similarity between the three of them because they seem kind of hollowed out when you just look at them. When you just look at how they they, they interact and how they balance off. So for example, Will's wife or Dennis Farina at times. I mean, I, I think that he has a little bit more latitude. Uh, William Peterson's character, but there seems to be this hollowness that there's something in there that's missing, or there's something okay. in there that's gone, and just sort of um, how they how they work that, as opposed to being, I think, what you see later in films is that the serial killer is is more agitated. Well, you know, we know what led to like,
5: that, but I think
3: that comes a little know, later. <laughs> like, like, like John Doe in Seven. If we're going to bring up Seven, I mean, there's there's this agitation there. There's not this hollowness that we get in this film, and I and I think that that may, for some people, be a bit of a turnoff because they're just kind of like it's so subdued. Now, I would
5: do think in that case, it's also the case of in that in Manhunter, in particular, both characters are hollow because they are filling their lives with this horror. To fill that kind of internal emptiness in a weird way, it's almost, you know, reminding me back of my psych classes back in college of there's this emptiness inside that they can only fill with these extreme activities.
4: You know, Rob, you brought up tenebrae, and there are definitely moments in here that remind me of a giallo. There are also a lot of moments that remind me of like a policier where we have, I mean, so much of the first hour of the film is the hunt for the killer. And we don't really see other than like, I think we see some hands right around one hour and five minutes into the film, not in black gloves, but (laughs) we do see hands. And really so much of this is this police procedural. And I love that we get the way that we follow Will and his thinking and everything, and just as he's picking up these little clues and trying to put them together, and I I kind of feel that European vibe. I mean, of course, we've had investigators in American films and uh, in other world cinema, but I think that some of the Italian and French films really kind of played an influence on this. Of course, we had the Italian uh, cinematographer on this film, but it felt like just that style of storytelling kind of really comes through. Because even if you go back to Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, Dollar Hyde is through the entire book. You know, it's almost like a one chapter to one chapter where it's Graham and then it's Dollar Hyde. Whereas with with uh, the film, we don't get Dollar Hyde. We have his presence very much like you were talking about, Harry Lyme. We don't get that meeting between Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles until so far into the film in this case we don't get the confrontation between Graham and Dollarhide until the very very end of the film but I like that we have this off screen figure who is just looming over everything through so much of it and that to me, that makes his reveal so much more powerful to see who is this person who is basically torturing Will Graham on the other side of it to finally see who this Francis Dollar Hyde character is. And we don't get the psychology of Dollar Hyde a whole lot. We don't necessarily know what made him into what he is today, but I kind of like that. I like it more that we don't understand who he is i mean we've talked before on the show about the whole um the discussion of norman bates at the end of psycho and how that just kind of cuts the legs out of the film sometimes Mm -hmm. i like that we don't get that about dollar Hyde. i like that he is his own person he's doing this for his own reasons and we don't necessarily get that i like that they've even cut out The Red Dragon from the book, which is so much of, you know, obviously it's where the title comes from, but it is so much of his world. And they were going for that. I think they shot every scene with Dollar Hyde with the dragon tattoo and without it, and that they chose to go without it. I think It was the smart idea that it isn't this whole, you know, the one thing. It's the MacGuffin as far as explaining who Dollar Hyde is. I like that they leave that out. So we just have this almost random guy out there doing these things for his own reasons. And it's up to Graham to try to figure out why that is. And we only
5: understand as much as Will Graham does. They they let a little bit out here and there, but only in the way he interacts with other people, like the way that the Reba character figures out that he had um, a speech impediment and, because it happened to be something that she would be familiar with, the way that um, Graham determines that he obviously came from abuse based on how it is and how he gave that give. He allows him to have that little speech about, yes, as a child, I feel pity for him. But as an adult, I want to shoot him out of his socks, I believe is the line. (laughs) Great line. I (laughs) love that line. Not knowing everything about your killer, there's a lot to be said about that. And that buildup means so much only if your character delivers. And from that very first shot, when Stephen Lang looks up and sees Tom Noonan with that pantyhose mask on standing there looking all creepy, you buy that that's your big bad in this movie real
3: fast. I also think that it's interesting that you brought up that it feels that Will Graham's character is more like this 70s character that we'd have in 70s film. And sort of thinking about this not explained force versus explained force or overly explained force is I think, also a difference that we would get if this movie uh, that that makes this film at times feel more like a 70s film, because in a 70s film, it'd be like, yeah, well, there's the killer and we're not going to explain it. And when you get to the 80s and on, it's like, oh, well, we have to explain it. We have to know. We have to understand. It, It is scarier not to understand what it is, but you could also, in a lot of ways, see it as a stand in for the thoughts of that time like you would see something like that in a 70s film because it's like we don't really understand Vietnam so <laughs> therefore you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is people always want to like put those two together and i think that it's kind of the same thing when we look at the difference between Manhunter and then later with the you know Red Dragon or whatever and we'll get into that later but not overly explaining that not not giving you the easy answers because like i said i think it's actually scarier if you don't understand because then it can seem like anyone
4: So Manhunter's coming out in 86 and I'm trying to think of some of the other films that might've been like it that had come out before. And I know the dominant trend in horror cinema for a long time was the whole slasher film. And I think the kind of the undoing of the slasher film at times was that over-explanation of who the killer was. I mean. The bastard child of a
5: thousand maniacs, perhaps. Exactly. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Or. well, Even look at the first Halloween film where it, could be a supernatural force. It could be right. something. You not never even- know. It's not explained.
5: He is. He yeah. is a. Like you said, he's a force. He is. He's not a person. He's yeah. a force. He's the unexplainable force of nature. And in a weird way, Dalahides like that too, because the way his brain is wired is just not wired the way we are. No matter how much you try to understand him, you're only going to get the tip of the iceberg because his brain just does not work the ways ours do. I think
4: that's what makes that first Halloween film so effective and then what kind of undercuts it as we go along, and especially comparing this Halloween, the first Halloween to Rob Zombie's Halloween, Uh where it is all (laughs) explanation of how Michael Myers became Michael Myers, and I can really kind of see almost a parallel between, you know, the the first Halloween and Manhunter versus the remake of Halloween and Red Dragon. I like that it is so much more of just Here's Francis Dollar Hyde. Here's him doing some pretty freaky stuff that makes sense to him, and we don't necessarily have to understand. I do like that we get the one moment where we really get into his brain. He's got this co-worker, Reba, played by Joan Allen, uh, this blind character. So kind of cheesy that she's a blind character so that she can look past his physical Deformities, or what he perceives as his own deformities, and see the true uh, person within him. You know, she's this you know figure that could be this redeemer. And we've talked about blind characters in films before, and how most of the time they're just kind of exploited for that either uh, extrasensory ability that they might have, or they're um, not seeing the one flaw that is present in the the other character. Regardless, I like that we have the scene where Reba and another coworker of theirs they're um, on her front porch, and we see in Dollarhide's mind what is what he perceives is going on, and it is completely not what reality yes. is. But I like that one moment that we get to glimpse inside of his brain. It's
5: th- that moment, and then you see how Graham picks up on that when he recreates the other uh, murder with the um, with the eyes. It's it's like he picked up on the fact that he just does not perceive reality the same way we do. Because yeah, that one shot with the light coming from the background where.
1: <laughs> what was it? Oh.
5: Oh.
1: Oh.
6: Thanks for ride.
5: See you tomorrow. Yeah. But for that one moment, Dollar Hyde sees his one chance of a normal life, a one chance of of filling that hole. Remember what you said about hollowness? She's starting to look like what could fill that gap that has been missing for him, and he just sees it all taken away from him in that one little shot. Going back to the eyes thing, the, the, the shot that
4: we do see of what... Graham is interpreting that Dollar Hyde had seen with those eyes, the mirror eyes, and the way that uh that kind of all ties in with what we have seen throughout the rest of the crimes and everything. I yeah, that is absolutely gorgeous. And it's nice that it's that kind of overlit thing
5: again. Yeah, the Scotchlight three M sort of thing. Yeah, and I miss that so much in movies now. It's always CGI now.
4: Yeah, and it was great. It was a great practical effect and then kind of overdone the same way that the light is too much that's coming from behind Reba and the co-worker as well. Did you
5: also notice that's the one that could be for some people take you out of shot in there, but I think it perfectly works to let you know that we're inside Graham's head. He pulls a shot that I'm sure Spike Lee must have saw once where he's moving forward. Without walking, very subtle. I'm not sure if they're doing the old dolly back zoom in trick or not, but the background is shifting away from him as he starts to come to his epiphany about what happens to Dollar Hyde when he's in this moment. It's real subtle, but it happens. And I really like how that was there. That was like the closest man was going to say, This is us kind of inside his head. I guess he had learned his lesson from The Keep about being over the top with the fantasy stuff.
4: You know, there were so few female characters in Manhunter. There's just a character on the phone that Lecter's talking to. There's just a few here and there. Really, the, the two primary females that we have are Molly and Reba. I don't think that this film would pass. What is that test called, Rob? The the Bechdel test?
5: Yeah, I, I always see it and I think of that uh, that guy that stars in the Rogan movies. I always think of his name. Yeah, there is one that, other female she- character that matters in there, though. Uh, the, the one sitting next to Chris Elliott at the briefing. The uh, hair expert, who's very competent, good at her job, but she's obviously not there as a female character. She's just there as a character. The other two are very intentionally there as female characters.
3: The big thing with the Bechdel test is that there, there are several different things, but the main one is, is that if you have two women in the film, that at some point their main focus is either on their relationship or talking about their relationship. And uh, so, yeah, I don't necessarily know if this one would pass.
5: It's the 80s, too. Uh, and at the time, if I recall, man admits he was a he-man, chain-smoking, coke-sniffing maniac. So that might have altered his perception of women just a little bit.
4: Yeah, you mentioned Chris Elliott, and it is so funny when I was watching this again just recently, sitting down watching it, and the wife is like, is that Chris Elliott? I'm like, "Yep, yeah, sure enough. And it's like he just kind of shows up out of nowhere. It's just like, what? Imagine how crazy
5: it felt at the time. At the time, he was only known for Late Show. I mean, uh, Late Late Night with David Letterman. You would never even consider him. As someone in a dramatic film, but then I remember this is Michael Mann we're dealing with. How many people did he cast against type on Vice?
3: Including yeah. Chris Elliott, who yeah. was also on yeah, Miami was Vice. was also
5: on Vice, but think, he went, hey, that guy that does that song, yeah, let's make a whole episode about his song, and let's hope he can act.
3: Hey, <laughs> Leonard Cohen was on <laughs> Miami Vice. Yeah.
5: And he only spoke French.
4: I have to admit that I never really watched Miami
5: Vice. Oh, you're missing out on a lot. It's a bumpy ride, but... You can see Mr. Man's fingerprints all over that show. I did try to watch the movie version of it. (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't hear you.
4: (laughs) I saw it at a drive-in. So basically I saw like a couple white things moving across the screen every now and then, and the rest was just
5: black. Oh, that was was like when I first saw Blade Runner at a (laughs) drive-in. Yeah, that was not the best way to be introduced to that film. No, I can't. No. (laughs) But yeah, Vice, actually the symbiosis between Vice and uh, Manhunter is is there in a lot of subtle ways too, not just the fashions, but the, the same kind of care that Vice did on a TV budget was man doing it on a big screen budget. There's a lot of crosstalk between some of his favorite actors, obviously Farina once again being in there. And man, I'm sorry, I love me some Scott Glenn, but to me, Jack Crawford has always been Dennis Farina. His no-nonsense approach. He's the, he's the realist. He's He just wants to get this case done. All that other crazy, freaky shit freaks him out. He doesn't care about that. He just wants to save these people. He lets... He, and he will use whatever is at his disposal to make it happen, even if it's kind of destroying a friend's life.
4: Some of Farina's Nonverbal stuff is so good. Like when the, uh, Atlanta cop is talking to Will Graham about the, the wounds that Lecter inflicted on him and just that glare. (laughs) <laughs> that Crawford's reaction, yeah, just like kind of rolls his eyes and he's just like, oh, fuck, the one thing that this guy has to bring up. Why didn't – why did he have to bring this up? And I almost imagine that he had to talk with the guy before to say don't yeah, say all anything the about
5: not this. not to say, please don't go right to there. It's kind of like – And I love it. It's kind of yeah, <laughs> like talking
4: no to Ron dialogue,
5: Goldman and saying, heard any good jokes lately? His reaction when Graham is trying to
4: basically kill Freddie Lowndes at one point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's great, too. It's, it's amazing to have Dennis Farina be the voice of reason, which normally wouldn't happen. Normally
5: not, especially when you saw where both him and Stephen Lang ended up in after that.
3: Well, speaking of Chris Elliott and uh, him turning up in Manhunter, <laughs> we talked to Chris and Adam Resnick on our Cabin Boy episode. And we saved just a little bit for you where he talks about Manhunter and some of the other appearances that he's made in film. Uh, would
0: you mind if we asked you a couple questions about Manhunter? go ahead Adam You, I don't mind go ahead you're asking Adam right <laughs> uh, I've never so Adam
2: what thing. thing I've been you're Michael Mann <laughs> uh, and I one to Chris but, I mean just, uh, the funny thing about that is just Michael Mann and uh, James Cameron not quite getting who Chris was <laughs> and, wow he would kill the scene once it was in the theaters but you, t- you, you talk
0: about that Chris well yeah, I mean they, I mean well, I I mean James Cameron, I guess knew who I was because he, you know, because I actually auditioned for that for the abyss and and, uh, but but Michael Mann, I don't think did. He had no idea. That was a casting person cast me, and it was just you know I came down, <laughs> I had this big beard, I was like you know twenty, I don't know five or something, twenty six. You were the guy under the seats too. That's, that's yeah, and I just had, I had this big beard, and you know I was supposed to be a. FBI agent with this, <laughs> and uh, you know this twenty-year-old with this big beard. And uh, um, I remember that they. I remember that day of shooting. That they the makeup person said, "Oh yeah, um, Mr. Mann said that um, the beard can stay, but he wanted you just to um, clean up your neck a little bit because I guess I had some hair on my neck too." So they gave me a razor. And I it, seriously, I think it was like the first time I had ever shaved. And I... I <laughs> didn't you tell I, me that like, you didn't know about beards, that you were supposed to trim them, and that's why you... No, I did. I had beard. I thought that they just sort of self-trimmed themselves. <laughs> I thought they just kind of like, it depend, you know, each person grew a beard, and they just, you know, depending on that person's personality, the beard would groom itself. And... And... and But I... So I, I remember, like, shaving my neck and just, like, cutting the crap out of my neck. And, uh... They had to, and, and then they had to like put bacne on it because it started to like s- you know swell up and get you know infected and and bright red and they had to put like makeup on it and and stuff in that scene and uh, yeah I felt like a like a I you know back then I was doing these things believe it or not even though I <laughs> I was pursuing outside projects they were purely for. <laughs> Stuff to come on late night with, to come on and sit down and show a clip and make fun of with Dave. They they weren't. I wasn't. I don't think I was really thinking I'm going to have a career in movies when I did Manhunter. I think I was thinking, oh, this will be really fun to show this clip on Letterman, and tell him, you know, and talk about being on a movie set and stuff like that. That'll be a funny segment. And uh, that was certainly you know the case with The Abyss when I did that and. Uh, um, any other like movie that from that time that I, that I did. And then I guess slowly I started, you know, I, I I guess when I did see before, you know, that was, I knew, well, I'm not going to come and make fun of that. This, you know, Chris Rock is, you know, he's a fellow comic actor and, and, uh, I'm doing this because, you know, the part's funny, you know, and, and, uh, I think that's when I started like thinking, Oh, I'm a comic actor, I guess. Um, but but those early things, especially the things that weren't, you know, like even the TV stuff, like doing the Equalizer or Miami Vice, those were all, like, just kind of like, you know, things like, oh, this will be fun, yeah, <laughs> you know. And it was like being in, you know, when GQ had a story on me and Dave showed that, you know, and it was funny because it was me, this dork, dressed up in really nice GQ clothing. And so, uh, you know, that's how Haggerty came about. Yeah, and Tiger Beat. So.
2: When you say Tiger Beat, that was, well, that's I think Manhunter. Wasn't it known that people? I mean, or you heard that uh, people were just laughing in the theater, would just break up when you came on because it really felt like almost like a stunt, like your character from Dave, the the guy under the seats guy, and the way you would talk to
0: Dave and that sort of pseudo. Well, yeah, I
2: I remember it was like it was a, being in a I, when I monster.
0: I saw it in a theater, <laughs> you know, and and people laughed. You know, and I was in the theater, you know, and, and uh, I remember people laughing when I, you know, popped up on screen. And it does, like, take you out of yeah. reality of that movie, which is pretty intense. I mean, I really liked yeah. that movie up until my appearance. And and it takes it out, you know, and I get into the movie. I invest in the movie. And then suddenly, wait, why am I talking to the star of this movie? <laughs> and, and And, you know, you know, thankfully, it's a brief scene, but uh, um, yeah, I, I I think that's a really good movie, and and uh, um, I think I'm the only misstep in it. But yeah, and the same thing with the abyss. You know, I think I think the abyss people because I'm in more than one scene in that people got used to seeing me.
2: Yeah, they buy it. They, they think,
0: you know start to buy it. Small. But but uh, um, you know, the story about the abyss is that that final scene um you know when uh you know this uh, we're all on on the boat and we're you know the alien ship is rising up from underneath the the boat um and these part of the ship is starting to break the surface and we we all had nothing to look at and and uh, James Cameron told us all just to look at, at this one spot and follow it up with our eyes and and to pick a reaction how would our character react to it and all the other guys on the ship reacted you know scared and and terrified all the you know naval guys and all that and but and I decided to act kind of giddy and happy and and think it's cool that this thing is going up and so I did it and you know what the person I who I was actually doing Melinda Dillon from close encounters um her reaction to um the big mothership coming down at the end knowing her son is inside and she gets really giddy and she kind of holds her her hands up to her mouth and she's she's kind of laughing and giggling and 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 laughing at the music and all that and that's what i was doing and i you know cameron yelled cut and i thought oh okay because he was had been kind of an ogre on the set and um i thought oh god I'm, i'm gonna get you know, yelled at here for doing that <laughs> because clearly I was doing that, and uh, he came up and he said, "Good reaction, Chris, to me." So, um, I think either he had wanted Melinda Dillon for the role, or or uh, he yeah, didn't realize that I was actually doing an impersonation of her.
2: And that's what gave you the confidence he, to do Cabin Boy.
0: And from oh. there, it was yeah, let's do Cabin Boy. Another
2: boat move. Another boat movie.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. Do you think you should have been back for Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if, you know, if Michael Mann had directed it, he would have had me back. Oh, sure, he would have definitely had me back for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, all those movies, you know, they were. It was fun to do. It was like it was a weird sort of surreal thing, you know, to be in in these to be on a movie set and all that. Um, but. Uh, um, it, those things were sort of done for material to come on late night with, which I did.
2: I'm glad that your career was just <laughs>
0: fodder for for bits for Letterman. I love it. Yeah, it, it seriously was. I mean, I was always thinking of what what could I do here, you know, that we could talk about on the show. And like, I remember when we were doing Brando, you know, and uh, we actually. <laughs> You know, this was sort of a lame Andy Kaufman thing, but we, you know, uh, you know, contrived this story that I had gotten, I the character had gone to my head and that I was walking around NBC, you know, dressed as Brando and, and uh, yelling at people and that. And um, my manager at the time um, actually like called, had a friend at the um, page six at the post and Called and said, you know, that Chris had just gotten into a scuffle with the security guard, <laughs> as Br, because he he was as Brando and wanted to get in, and you know, if the security guard wouldn't let him in, and they had they got into a fight, but everything is okay now, and and that made it in to the paper, and it was just completely made up, and but it was something that you know. I could co- you know. Dave showed, you know. Well, look at our own little Chris Elliott. Got in, you know. It was like <laughs> it was all that kind of stuff that uh, just seemed, you know, tailor made for uh, late night.
2: When he held up your Tiger Beat picture, different than when you when you're in the magazine. I figured what you had a really funny bio in there, but uh, it, I figured what year. It said that you were born in, but it's like, so let's see if he was born in this year, that means he was about four when he came to work for us. <laughs> this was earlier, really, and, uh, I remember one of the questions on that, the tiger beat asked, asked you, is uh, are there any other actors you admire, um, these days? And you, and you said, your answer was, you know, I really like Rob Lowe. I think he's got a lot of style.
0: <laughs> I actually got like, uh, I got fan mail from, um, you know, from these, like, teenage girls, you know, then, you know, whatever it was, sent a, know, a know, forwarded wig them. On. <laughs> Yeah, I had a wig, and they were, they were in on it. They were, you know, they thought it was a yeah, no, no problem, yeah. and but they didn't, like, they didn't let on. They were so great. They weren't like, you know, yeah. here's a little... Practical joke from comedian Chris Elliott. It wasn't like that. They just it ran me right next to Rob Lowe or whoever else right. was in there at the time with my shirt halfway buttoned down and uh, this ridiculous wig on and jewelry. Making it, whatever. but making
2: like a cool look. You had like a cool pose, kind of.
0: Yeah, no, I did look hot. I think. And, well, uh, um, well, <clears throat> huh. um, but uh, yeah, it was. It was well, I, I remember, like, I think Dave pointed this out. It was like, uh, in my scene in Miami Vice, you know, I'm supposed to be a friend of Don Johnson's, and that, you know, that he had met me in, in Vietnam in Pleiku and which, you know, I think would have made me, like, you know, 12 years old in Nam. <laughs> you
2: know? Just that you were in Nam at all. And...
0: Yeah,
2: the that I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that Dave asked you on the air about that.
0: I, th- I vaguely remember that, either that or yeah, I think he kind of asked myself. And just yeah, you right, know. Yeah. So I was actually ten years old in Vietnam, Dave. <laughs>
4: Thanks to Chris Elliott and Adam Resnick for coming on the show. You can hear more from the interview on our Cabin Boy episode. And also, Adam will return later this year as we talk about Death to Smoochie. And we just dropped an episode, a little quick interview with him where he's talking about his – latest book, or his first book, I should say, Will Not Attend, Lively Stories of Detachment and Isolation, which is a terrific read and really can't recommend that enough. So looking forward to talking about Smoochie with him again later on in the year. I guess we should probably talk a little bit about some of the differences of the different versions of Manhunter. There are, what is it, like
5: five? It's Breach and Blade Runner levels. Luckily, there wasn't a Will Graham voiceover. Yeah, where you hear version. William Peterson saying it, but I'd rather be a killer than a victim, as brightly <laughs> as he possibly can. There's one fan edit out there that took all of the
4: different versions and tried to cut them all together. And then luckily for me, because I'm not that familiar with all the versions, there is a subtitle track that will tell us what version things were from. Uh, after a while, I lost the thread as far as – he's calling them like TC for theatrical cut, DC for director's cut, and there's a couple others. And after
5: a while, I was just like, what? Uh, yeah, I don't I remember didn't watch, th- I didn't watch the subtitles, but um, I'm pretty sure – here's the thing about Manhunter, though. I had the original film so locked into my head that every time a new version came out, I instantly knew when they added new stuff. From the first time I heard Lecter lean in and say, a layman a lay man i was like oh this is new. I've never seen this before. They're, they cut Lecter footage out? What the hell was man thinking? And then I realized, well, maybe it wasn't man. He did do this movie for Mr. DeLaurentis, who, who of course, is one of the most hands-off producers you're ever bound to have. Yes, we've talked about Mr. DeLaurentis several times on
4: the show, <laughs> and just how uh, how interesting his relationship with uh, filmmakers
5: can be. Yeah, especially when we're talking about the, the Dune episode. Did you even know that uh, this Particular film is what held up Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because Dino was like, no, I own this movie. You don't get to... I need money for Silence of the Lambs. Also, when monkey die, people gonna cry. I'm sorry, I just love that quote forever.
4: (laughs) De Laurentiis and his legal problems definitely... Did a lot of interesting things to Hollywood, and still some things that are felt today. I mean, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the Hannibal TV show, but apparently since MGM put out Silence of the Lambs, those characters are locked in a different universe than uh, or some of those characters are locked in a different universe than the characters that were in Manhunter, and then subsequently Hannibal and Hannibal Rising. So, When it comes to the Hannibal TV show, I don't think that a Clarice Starling is going to appear because she is MGM property. It's kind of this whole weird thing with like the Marvel Universe and where, you know, Peter Maximoff shows up or doesn't. So it's just, yeah, strange the way that these rights things work. And this is, you know, we're talking 86 for this stuff and Mm -hmm. 90 for Signs of the Lamb. So here we are, what? (laughs) 25 almost years later and we're still feeling the effects of this it is kind
5: of strange thanks dino although i'll always thank you for slipping jessica lange's tits in the Kinka. So what did you guys think of the different versions of Manhunter? Why were
4: some of the things cut, in your opinions? And did they really kind of add anything? What what changes were there that might have made a difference? Well,
3: I have this two-disc limited that uh, Anchor Bay put out, which is the director's cut and the theatrical. The director's cut's only a couple of minutes longer. And from my memory, it's not huge changes compared to the theatrical. But watching the fan edit... Uh, there were two scenes in there that I thought really added quite a bit, and I don't remember them in the director's cut. One is an extended version of Will meeting with Dr. Chilton at the uh, asylum before he goes in to meet with Lecter. And there's this whole conversation with him about, you know, you're one of the few people who can get into his head, who, who knows about him, and, you know, can you tell me about him and all this stuff. And and it's Dr. Chilton trying to pull stuff out of Will to get him to talk about Lecter and what he knows and understands about Lecter. I was going to
5: actually say, would you call that a conversation or a monologue with a rejoinder? (laughs) And then it's over.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I just thought, I just thought that added something.
5: It felt like it tied more to the Chilton we get later because the Chilton was a blank slate in the original theatrical version. And actually the original directors could, did you notice how we began the conversation with, is it Dr. Graham? And the minute Graham says, no, You can almost feel the distaste Chilton has of, yet somehow you made more progress than me, you son of a bitch.
3: Yeah, I mean, it becomes these levels of, as we were talking about, oh, you think you're smarter than me, Lecter. So it's this gamesmanship between the guy running the asylum, Lecter, and (laughs) and Will Graham to some extent. The other scene that's in there that I really like, and I can understand why they cut it out, because it can be a throwaway but I think it adds just an extra level is there's a phone conversation where he's in the hotel room calling uh, Molly and they're having this conversation about what paint color do you want in the kitchen. It, it's a little bit more involved in that. But I think that that adds another level, another layer to him being grounded to home, which for quite a while we don't see her after the beginning.
5: I did like that sequence, too, because the way it what it's conveying is. His brain ain't on the banality of everyday life. The thing that he went out of his way to stop doing this stuff to go. Now that he's starting to roll down that hill again, this is just minutia getting in his way. And he kind of snaps at her for a second. And then he immediately realizes what he did. And he pulls back. And even she realizes, maybe this wasn't the time to have that kind of conversation right now. You know, he's going through crime footage, trying to prevent a murder. Maybe it's not time to be talking about what color we're going to paint the kitchen
4: that scene really kind of comes directly from the book and it was nice to see that back in there. I know people are going to uh, really kind of uh, bristle at this, but Manhunter is a fairly faithful adaptation of Red Dragon, if not in actual dialogue and plot, at least in spirit and tone. So it was nice to have that. And I do enjoy that kind of reappearance of, of Chilton a little bit more of him. He's probably the nicest Dr. Chilton that yeah, we'll yeah, have. once we get. It was good to see him in there because I kind of wonder if when they found the note in Hannibal's cell, like what the other Dr. Chilton or Chiltons would have done, would they have said on that or would they have kind of held it for ransom a little bit? I'd like that this Dr. Chilton immediately knows to get Graham on the phone and go from there.
5: I would have felt the, the silence Chilton, I think, would have used that
4: as a bargaining chip exactly which is i kind of like his interpretation of the character and i think that's a little bit more true to the book but i do like that this chilton it, it doesn't necessarily need to be that fleshed out of a character you know it, i think that having the freddy Lowndes character in there as will's adversary is just as uh, as important and i think that he kind of takes the place uh, of a adversarial chilton Will's already got enough shit that he has to deal <laughs> yeah. with, so having yet another antagonist is just way too much. Especially when you get the feeling
5: that regular cops, that, that extended scene with the cops, shows you that mundane cop world. And every time they look to the guy who's supposed to have all the answers, he keeps saying, I don't know. I don't know. So they, you can kind of tell that the mainstream, blue-collar, uh, everyday Joes who deal with, like, you know, what's his line? I mean, when a fence steals something— I know to look out for the chop shops because his rationale is cash money. This guy, we ain't even got a motive. So this is like an alternate world to them. So they're looking to this sage, this Yoda of of the criminal serial killer. And he keeps telling them, no, I got to figure it out. I don't know. I have no answers. And you can kind of tell that's where that conversation led to the, I heard he cut you pretty good. Because they're losing that. He's supposed to be coming here with all the answers, yet he ain't telling us shit. This is like that guy. This is like getting Huggy Bear and giving him twenty bucks, and he tells you thanks and just walks out the bar. Now, as far as the extended versions, there's one scene in particular that I want to talk about. Well, actually, there's two. One that I feel really didn't need to be there, but I I kind of think it was a favor and a tie-in to Miami Vice, where Switek shows up as the home uh, the guy selling the house totally unnecessary in my opinion it doesn't provide any information we didn't already have and i kind of prefer the harsh cut from the creep out on the plane to the shriekback song playing in the yard because that's such an amazing sequence it, it, it actually feels like a speed bump to me but i think that was because they were cool and he put him in the movie and he wanted miami vice fans to go hey look it's white tech playing somebody else but the other scene is the final scene that they added Which is when Graham shows up at the final family that was supposed to be killed. And there's just the slightest implication that you're not sure if he's there in a positive or negative fashion.
4: Yeah, he comes to the door and he's just so messed up because he's had the shit beat out of him by Francis Dollarhide. Sliced in the face with glass. (laughs) Oh, just looking so rough and great makeup job on his face. He looks so messed up.
5: And you see him struggling. It's like he he almost has no dialogue. The, the couple does like 90% of the lines.
3: <gasps> what do you want?
2: My name is Will Graham. I'm with... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's right. Come on in. Please? No, that's all right.
0: You okay?
6: We're fine.
0: We're okay, right. yeah. And we're doing all right. Thanks. Listen, um, that guy Crawford called and and he was telling me all about what's going on. Would you like to come in
5: and have a cup of coffee or a drink?
0: No, thank you. Listen, I want. I just stopped by to. uh, Listen, I want. I want to thank you. I. I I just stopped by to
1: see
5: you. That's all. 90% of the acting seems to be coming just from the way Peterson's eyes are darting about. And you can tell that there's just so much shit going on in his head right now. But that final moment where he kind of cuts his tie to this life, turns around and walks away, I thought was something that was kind of needed. Because in the original cut, it goes straight from Crawford, who magically is walking around just fine after apparently being shot, sits down next to um, Graham on the bridge, and then... boom, boom. I can feel a heartbeat and happy ending. I really felt that that moment was missing. And to me, that felt more like producer interference than a choice man originally made, because I don't believe man had final cut on this. I don't think anybody ever had final cut with Dino. Just
4: Lynch on Blue Velvet, I think, was the only one who ever managed that through a
3: handshake deal. I already screwed up the last film you did with me. I may as well let you have this one.
4: (laughs) I still think that there almost needs to be a little bit more between that scene that you're talking about, where he visits the house, and that happy ending, because the happy ending afterwards is almost even more abrupt after that scene. It almost seems like there needs to be either a little bridge or a just some sort of bridge scene where we see him getting a little bit better because we go from him being so messed up to him being perfectly fine out in the sunlight. And I was glad though, that the movie ended the way that it ended because I know some people have problems with the movie ending differently than the book Mm -hmm. because the book ends much more, it ends much more in line with red dragon But I think that it ends better to have Dollar Hyde, spoiler, Hmm. to have Dollar Hyde shot and laying there in that pool of blood and the, the kind of dragon wings underneath him made out of blood. I think that works so much better to be able to give the film closure at that moment and then have that extra question mark moment that you just talked about with that family scene and then go into the real close out of the film. I, I think that works a lot better than having us think the dollar hide is dead. And then the freak out, the psych out and the attack on the beach and putting the family in danger and all of this kind of stuff. It's just like, no, no, we've had enough. And we really don't need the intersection of the dollar high world with the Molly and kid world. We don't need that part of this film. They're fine being in this separate world section this separate life that Graham has I'm glad that there's not this overlap so we've already had moments such as that telephone conversation that you just mentioned we've had moments where the two are kind of getting pretty darn close that one is affecting the other and you know them having to to move to a different place after elector gives their home location and everything I'm glad that we don't ever have that crossover. So I think that they played it really smart with the way that they didn't have that final freak out end scene, you know, where it basically Dollar Hyde becomes like the Terminator yeah. with that one. It's just like, okay,
5: enough, enough. That would have been the Tenebrae ending where you get the, you know, the shot that De Palma ripped off in Raising Kane where he bends down and the killer still the killer still alive yeah this movie really didn't need that i also love how they let that shot linger with the red wings where you can kind of almost see Graham's looking at him like you are dead fucker right <laughs> he's just standing there like this is over right because he's been so caught up in it it's like it hasn't like actually sunk in yet he just kind of stands there for a few seconds looking at him. i'm shocked he didn't like kick him a couple of times just to be sure but I'm ocean. thinking that Michael Mann could have did a Michael Mann moment. He could have come home after all that house still in the dark blue sits there, kind of no words, dark. Maybe like that same shadow effect that he used when uh, Crawford was talking to Re- uh, talking to his wife earlier. Except instead of the sunset, it'd be like clouds or something. But then maybe he walks outside, and then you get one of those great. For a brief moment, it might look like the same way Dollar Hyde saw the world, but then you realize it's just his eyes adjusting to the light and then he walks up to the turtles and sees that they start to hatch and then then cut to what we get. never occurred to me till somebody brought it up at this exact moment.
3: The other thing with the end scene with uh, with Dollar Hyde and the you know the showdown at the house is that there's some jump cuts in there that make things really disorienting. Which... Oh,
5: I love those jump cuts so much. They, they make, they put you on edge. It's like, Oh, Oh, it's like, it's almost like man say, I just need you to get the gist of what's happening here. And also just a little bit, this might be a little bit again of how Dole Hyde sees what he's doing. I don't know if I had ever really even heard the song in a guy
4: before. And for that song to be used in that scene, and of course, now I can never think of that <laughs> song. I can never hear that song without thinking of that scene and just to use that piece of music, as we mentioned earlier, music is used very effectively through the film, but especially in this end scene for me, just really sets this mood and is you know it's a fucking creepy song with yes. the organ and everything, and to use that as the backdrop of Dollar Hyde's unraveling, and the shot of Will running up towards that window and bursting through, and that's our first... First intersection of Will and Dollarhide after all this time in this film with him tracking him and everything, or or hunting this man as the title would imply, finally getting that moment. And I love that Dollarhide is just like picks him up and just, like, <laughs> just you know, smack, throws him <laughs> like a fucking rag doll.
5: Yeah, remember Dollarhide is becoming as God is. That's, that's that that was seemed to be fitting in his motif at that point where it's like smack smack. You are just a problem in my way. (laughs) Go into the corner. I've still got things to do. What I also love is that they were pulling a Star Trek 2 Wrath of Khan throughout most of this movie. You have this great battle between two people, but a lot of people always forget there's no face-to-face confrontation between Khan and Kirk in that whole film. We at least got that in this. There is a final confrontation, but up until, what is that, the last 10 minutes of the movie? There is no direct interaction between our hero and our villain uh even silence of the lambs kind of screwed that up a little bit by you know i believe the final sequence is like 15 almost 20 minutes long the way they play it out because they have the investigation part where we get the fake out and we think she's at the wrong house but in manhunter they only interact they don't even share any there's no dialogue if i recall they just physically interact two different forces of nature one mostly on the side of good one mostly on the side of not good and, and and it ends like when fire meets water.
3: The use also of that song, I mean, it is almost like score in the psychology of the Dollar Hyde character because of the whole sort of as we were saying, the, the whole need concept that he wanted her and wanted her to come with him and, and all of this to as we were saying, you know, uh, fill that hollowness and everything. And that song just completely just the lyrics of it on yeah. top of the creepiness of the organ and everything, as Mike said, is, is, like, score. It's just perfect. Like, whoever came up with that idea, it's just genius.
5: The same way he uses Shriek back during their, uh, which I've always had to admit, rather impromptu love scene, because like you guys were saying earlier, right next to the magical Negro is the heightened senses blind person in movies. She She senses his sexual attraction watching his next victims and just pounces him. That song and that music actually kind of tells the story better than the story is at that point. This big hush, there's that part where after they're done having sex, he's laying there in the bed with her. And he, got, he does these little creepy things because, man, Noonan just, where he like leans and listens to her heart for a second. Then he leans back over, puts her hand on his mouth, and he starts to cry a little bit and the music's telling you all you know it's like all the lyrics and the lyrics are so vague that they kind of fit perfectly it's like oh desire the ashes and the fire turning this night inside and the life of you and also thank you mr man for introducing me to shriek back the other song the strong as i am song
4: i think is another one that just plays perfectly with it you know just that emotional fragility that is going on with with the character is told through that song the lyrics and everything just works so well and you could disparage the film by saying that it's nothing but a music video it's that's what critics did say back then yeah It's slick. It's neon lit. It's all these colors and all this kind of stuff. But there's so much more going on to it. And like I said at the beginning of the conversation, that style is used in the proper way. That style is used to enhance the story, to tell the story with the visuals, rather than it just being this distraction.
3: To me, I don't see it as over-stylized. As a matter of fact, When I went and read some reviews of it, I go, okay, maybe in 1986 when you saw this, it's over-stylized. But this thing is restrained to me compared to what we see nowadays.
5: Oh, no doubt. Yeah, where style over substance has become the norm again since this happens in waves – so let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play back a pair of interviews.
4: Uh, the first is going to be with Jonathan Rayer, the author of The Cinema of Michael Mann, Vice and Vindication, where we do talk a lot about the use of style in Michael Mann's films. And the second one is going to be with Francis Dollar Hyde himself, Tom Noonan.
1: Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com. When you use the promotion code BOOTH, you also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today.
3: It's the Daily Grindhouse
1: Podcast. I got your boy
3: hanging. You no-business, Bond, insecure junkyard mother. Starring Dr. Freaks. Am I the only one who is concerned about the naked woman tied to a bed? Johnny A-bomb. I put out the trash. Joe Cosby. Softcore picture? You just said softcore picture. And Warhawk Tanzania as Warhawk Tanzania.
5: You do not come to my turf talking about busting
3: ass. When it comes to cinema, we talk the cream of the crop. While scraping the bottom of the barrel Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook And of course on DailyGrindhouse.com The Daily Grindhouse Podcast Because you deserve it
2: Movies need only three things Badasses You tell me who you want done And I'll do the hell out of
1: it A chick with drive Who don't take no jive Boobs Do you know That the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons.
2: And body counts.
1: Body Count. The Mathematics of Murder.
2: And the BBNBC Podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at BadassesBoobsAndBodyCounts.com. You got the goddamn
1: message?
4: Let's go to work. Tell me a little bit about you. It seems like you've been very interested in naval history and especially the cinema of Australia.
6: Well, my PhD, I studied Peter Weir, and that got me interested in Australian cinema. And that's, uh, that's where I started doing that in the early 90s. And so for the first, I suppose, 10 years or so, I suppose, of my teaching and research, I was working on Australian and then, to a certain extent, New Zealand cinema. I had a lifelong interest in, in naval history and, and war films. And so that that was a kind of a sideline, which eventually I thought, well, I might just make that a, a proper area of, of writing as well. So... I suppose about 2005, 2006, I started doing that more consistently as well. Um, but I suppose at, at heart, really, I just um, I'm I'm interested in the films that um, that I'm interested in, so I, I tend to write on on whatever comes along, which I think is which is fascinating and and, and worth the attention. So, um, in terms of the Man Project, I've been watching his films. I, I suppose actually Manhunter was the first one that, one of his that I saw when it came on British television sometime in the late 80s um, when I was still an, an undergraduate student studying English literature and, and film in tandem at that stage and and i was aware of the of the novel and saw the film on as when it was sh- shown on terrestrial television in, in the u k and thought this is a this is a fantastic <laughs> this is a fantastic film um but never really thought any more about um about man's uh, didn't see anything else by him until um last mohicans came out whenever that was nineteen ninety two One of the people that I I credit in the book is a a friend of mine who's a a clinical psychologist, a a family therapist, and he and I had lots of conversations about the the psychological aspects of of Manhunter and the... the, um, the sense of life meaning and the questioning of life meaning that runs through all of man's films. And so out of lots of conversations with him and out of teaching man's films on lots of courses at different universities I worked at came, came the desire to finally put it all together and, and, and make a book out of it. So that's, that's where that came from. But um, I think that's why it turned into a, a project, much like the, the Peter Weir project, to write a book about uh, a single director's output.
4: So when it came to writing about Man, how did you kind of want to go about things? How did you uh, attack the project?
6: That's a good question, because I think I, had, I, I knew pretty much the, the films... Well, I, I knew my approach to some of the films, which were the ones which I, I felt were the, the clearest in, in terms of their genre dera- derivation, and that was um, Heat and Thief and... Collateral and and things like that. The, the crime films, the crime and, and policing films, were the ones that, which I, I felt closest to, and which I'd I'd written a little a little article on years ago, just to look at the way in which um, he'd adapted aspects of crime films in the past. What most what most people come come back at you with, I think, when you when you talk about man's films in in the classrooms or with students or with with colleagues, is either being put off by or being being captivated by. the the visual style and so I I ended up deciding that I had to do a a section of the book on just on man's style and that led me to think about again all the other filmmakers that I I admired and I could see were contemporaries or, or influences people like particularly like Scorsese and so out of that grew uh, a sense that actually about a quarter of the project, as it turned out, one of, one of the four chapters of the book had to be about man's style. And instead of it being um, the kind of the add-on, after I discussed the genres and the discussions of motivations and characterization and masculinity and all of those things, actually, the, it, as it turned out, the, the style chapter came first. And that's why it's its first in the book in the end, because I think it's 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 impossible to, to read the films without considering all of the intricacies of style that are there. So um, actually, far from being a kind of an add-on, or in some cases of, of people's readings of man's films, a, a kind of a barrier. they like, see the, the razzmatazz of the style as a, as a bit off-putting. Actually, that's the way, and I think you have to see the way that his his style has developed and the balancing of the TV and, and film careers uh, in order to um, to really get a sense of how meaningful and and aesthetically cohesive his films
4: are. You know, you talked about the crime films, and that definitely is quite a through line with his entire career. What do you see as far as some of the outliers, like The Last of the Mohicans or The Keep, some of these...
6: Actually, I mean, again, I, I, having seen Manhunter first, and then having a kind of a lull, and then and then when Last Mohicans came out, thinking, oh yes, I've got to see that, I've got to see the the, the next film that had come my way by that by that guy. Actually, I thought, although it although it seems, I suppose this is, this is what you do when you when you study a, a study a director. You're in, in, in terrible danger of, of normalising everything and saying everything is is the same or everything is consistent. Um, the things that I liked most about Mohicans were. Again, the sense of an erosion of, of clear dis- distinctions of good and good and bad, or or right and wrong. The greatest departure, I think, from Fenimore Cooper's novel that man makes. And again, this is related back to his, his work on what is a, um, a classical. Um, a classical Hollywood 1930s screenplay, is the recasting of of the character of Magua, not just in a kind of a a, a liberal correction of the treatment of Native Americans, but actually in making him a direct opposite and, and, in another sense, uh, exactly the same as Nathaniel. Somebody else who's who's lost. Somebody else whose whose family is is all loss of family is, a, is the defining aspect in his character, and where Nathaniel is is made, I think, um, separate and independent and and, and self righteous to a certain degree. Uh, Magla becomes marked and tragic and and. Um, um, Almost sort of self-destructive, uh, so they are they are essentially the same character, just the same, the same as, as you see in in Heat with um, Macaulay and, and Hannah they are opposites that are also the same. And I think um, when I wanted to, again when I wanted to turn around and, and um, put Last Mohicans in, in the book, although it's. Um, Morally and and kind of psychologically the same. The thing that interests me and the thing that I wanted to do differently about that was the sense of of it as an American Western, as an American romance, and the sense of landscape and the domestic. The the domestic scenes at the at the start of the film I think are extraordinarily touching, um, in, in the the rosy colours that he uses and the the intimacy of the inside of the homestead. Um, and that, I think, um, is again uh, the the it's it's that area. It's the, the family and domestication and all of those things which are most endangered in, in in that environment.
4: Yeah, that was one thing I found very fascinating about your book is how you kind of grouped manhunter Mohicans and insider all in this yeah. uh, chapter of endangering the domestic.
6: Yes, I don't know. Was that did you think that was um, too much of a stretch?
4: No, I don't think so at all. I think it worked really well, and I, I really kind of appreciated how you tied the three together.
6: Yeah, I think the insider is, is again. I think the insider is a, is a fantastic film because of the way in which it 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 confronts this idea of, of the incompatibility of professional. Um, professional morality, in a way, or prof- sort of self self respect, and the obligations of of the domestic, the, the commitments to family, and the fact that um, you can't you can't honour them both. It's an absolutely impossible to honour them both, or at least it's impossible in in man's universe to honour them both. I think.
4: When it comes to Manhunter, the one thing that. Always kind of strikes me is just how many different versions of it there are floating around. Yes, Did you uh, kind of have to track all those down?
6: Yes. Well, I I've, I think I, I I ended up looking at about three different ones. And again, I didn't appreciate when I first saw Manhunter on television in, in this country that actually the the version that I saw is is different from both what's seen as the American theatrical release and the American director's cut. And I tried to talk about that a little bit in, in the book because I think it it, it, is, it is a fascinating um, divergence. The, the version that I saw first and, and therefore the kind of the version that I, I prefer and have in my head is, is markedly different. It has one or two uh, omissions Like the scene between um, Graham and Molly before the stakeout, that's that's missing from that version. But equally, there's the extended uh, dialogue between um, Jack Crawford and Graham, where there's this this, again, where Graham um, articulates this sense of his ambivalence towards the character. That yes, he will, yes, he will pity this. Maybe this man, who's who's grown out of uh, an abusive childhood, and yet at the same time he'll have to kill him, and he he won't he won't shrink from that, and the the fact that you can hold both of those contrary views simultaneously, that's articulated very clearly in in this version, and is is strangely absent from the others. So.
4: I was curious, you were talking about the, the two characters in Mohicans, the two characters in Heat. Yeah. Do you see Graham and Dollarhide as kind of being the same person, yeah. Yeah. two yeah. sides of the coin?
6: I think that's true as, as well. I think um, one of the curiosities about Man's Film, I think, is, is how little you see of Dollarhide in comparison with the other with the other version of Red Dragon, but also with the, the versions of the the Lecter films, there's so much time lavished to, uh, on the, the serial killers and so much um, revelation of their background. But man you know, jettisons that. There's there's next to nothing of of Harris's novel uh, uh, in terms of the background of Dollarhide that makes it into a manhunter at all. And so what you see from what you see of him really is only his his methodology. And then you see Graham figuring out the motive, and because it's Graham articulating the motive, the, the scenes that stand out in *Manhunter*, I think, are the re- the repetitions of the visits to the, the the Leeds house crime scene, and the fact that it's uh, it's Graham who works out what is going on in Dollar Heights head when he's there, and so I think again, it's um, the sympathy and the the, the uh, uh, synonymousness between the two characters is 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 made very clear.
4: We touched a little bit about the man's style. Do you still find when you're talking to people that that is kind of the barrier to entry with his filmography?
6: Obviously, I've been talking to um, students and teaching man's films now for quite a while, I suppose, since I suppose I put them, started putting them on courses at, at the university that I've worked at since the, about 95, 96. About the time that Heat came out, I started putting man's uh, films on my courses. And. Um at that stage, students were um, aware, I think, of, of the Miami Vice thing and, and how uncool Miami Vice TV was. Um, now it's a bit more distant, I think. And so um, students actually, I mean, I think uh, this always happens. You know, generations of students um, have seen different things or, or haven't necessarily seen the things that you think they've seen. And so the, the conversations always, always vary. And nowadays, I think... Um, students have seen things like um, Collateral and have seen um, Public Enemies um, but are not familiar with, with Miami Vice, the, the television series. So the last time I taught Manhunter actually was last year. I put on a course um, looking at se- several directors and I did a session on we and did a session on, on man and, uh, and placed them alongside people like Scorsese and, and Truffaut and some some obvious choices. and and the the response to Manhunter was, uh, God, this is so 80s. <laughs> this, is, this is so 80s with this electronic soundtrack and uh, the colors and the suits and oh my God. And I hadn't expected that at all. It was, they came at it kind of cold and and it just looked like something that was fossilized to them. <laughs> so yes, I think, sorry, to come back to your question, I think, yes, I think um, in some ways um, visual style in, in a, a kind of an extreme... Um, dated, for want of a better word, example of that. Then I suppose it can be a bit of an, uh, an obstacle to overcome. But then again, we've done um, um, I've done collateral with with students for the last two years with a colleague of mine on a, on a course at, at Sheffield, and collateral goes down great guns. I think even though again the look of that is very very self-conscious, the lighting and the the digital the digital. Um, the, the digital the texture of that is very very conspicuous, but, but students have, have really enjoyed that.
4: I'm curious, what do they react really well to? What's the one that, that grabs them if a man film is going to get them?
6: Lots of them, I think, are familiar with, with Heat because of the, the, the fame of that film. Um, and some of them have seen Mohicans, and some of them might have seen Miami Vice, and some of them have seen Ali. But not many of them have necessarily seen collateral. What really works again there is is the the sort of the dual protagonist thing, that they look at it and they're expecting it to be a Tom Cruise movie. They're expecting it to be a single star movie. Um, And actually it's it's two stars. And actually then they think, oh, hang on, Cruise is the villain. And and suddenly the the rug has been pulled on them. And then actually you've got all the uncharacteristic humor in that film. And then, they're, then they're sort of really, really kind of casting about to how they're supposed to respond to this film. That Tom Cruise is, is a, um, a wise-cracking contract killer, and and Jamie Fox is oh, Jamie Fox is the hero now, um, and it really works, I think, to um, to look at something which is constructed very, very intricately and very with a great deal of contrivance, and yet seems to be shot um, with gentle realist... Grasp of the Los Angeles environment.
4: On the other hand, is there a movie that you would expect them to kind of glom onto that they're just completely they they can't handle
3: at all?
6: Probably the the keep. I think I've I've always shied away from um, looking at the keep at length. I've I've shown clips of it and we've talked we've talked about it with classes. And there are there are one or two students who have come across it. it. It it airs once or twice. Or has aired once or twice on film channels and and stuff in the u k and so there are people who, who are familiar with it, but it is such an oddity I think in all fairness, probably not an entirely successful film but you know a fascinating a fascinating combination of elements i don't think they'd they'd probably respond very well to that one, probably simply because it it is such a, a a sort of a strange tonal mix, very kind of slow and deliberate and I think that's that might be a, a hard sell <laughs>
4: What's the story with the keep? Because uh, again, aren't there different versions of that that kind of float around, or have we even seen the original that um, man wanted us to see?
6: I, yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, there are stories about um, 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 an original director's cut. The only version, again, the only version that I've ever come across has is, is been one consistent version, which seems to be um, a, the a kind of a commercially released standard. I don't know whether, any, whether there's ever going to be any kind of Correction or, or or completion of the, the story of that because I think um, the, the interviews that I've read with, with Mann he's he's quite not exactly tight lipped on it but he doesn't doesn't have a great deal to say about it as a film which is a shame I think probably because it, it kind of falls between his earlier things which I think you know his earlier TV um, writing and the the Jericho Mile and then the success of of Miami Vice on on TV I think. If in, in, in my opinion, I think the, the Jericho Mile is probably a, a, a more cohesive and unified and, and I think Jericho Mile is an easier film to fit with the emphasis upon crime and, and morality and masculinity and the realism of, of, of um, prison experience and a man's choices in where he shoots his films. All, all those kinds of things, I think Jericho Mile is, is a, a much more obvious starting point and a much more deliberate Identifiable man film, whereas uh, the, the keep I think, although it's again in genre terms is really interesting. I think in the way that it it um, brings together the horror and the war film, something which has been much more an area of experimentation since. You know, I think you, know, you only have to look at the 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 games environment and the, the Wolfenstein um, frang- franchise and innumerable films since then, which have rhymed together war and horror. So, I think in, in some ways, I, just, I think you could just say that The Keep is maybe a little bit ahead of its time in that respect, and also um, out on a limb slightly within the rest of, of man's films. And so, I think it's, that's probably why I think it would be a, a more difficult film to to talk about it, um, uh, at the kind of level where the other ones thrive.
4: So, is the Jericho Mile kind of to The Keep the way that LA Takedown is to Heat?
6: Um, I, yeah, I suppose you, you could say that. I think um, I I hadn't come across the Jericho Mile until, ooh, I suppose about a year before I started writing the book, and I thought it was... Um, I, I was not... I was well. I, I don't think I had any expectations, and if I did have any expectations, then I think um, they were um, they were met by what is a, a really fascinating film. I think the the scenes in in the prison and the detail again, the kind of anthropological study of the groups in the prison is is just fantastic. It's it's again, it's it's a kind of a quiet observation. Of, of, of groups in action, which is really quite unusual, I think it just it gives a sense of the plumbing of, of different groups' dynamics and the, the, the sources of the sources of characters' motivations from from milieu where they are known and, and, and um, understood by by peers.
4: So it was kind of nice of Mr. Man to take off a few years for you there uh, between yeah, yeah.
6: <laughs>
4: between his last film and, and his next one. So That's that,
6: true, yes. There's kind of, it's, it's always a worry, because uh, Peter Weir did that. You know, I, I kind of caught up and, and finally um, sort of did a second edition of the book and, and caught up with The Truman Show, and then he went and brought out um, uh, Master and Commander. So yeah, it's, uh, the filmmakers will do this too. But I suppose, um, I think Man's got a film out next year or. I think it's, there's discussion of a film by next year or maybe 2016, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think um, I, I caught up with his daughter's f- film, Texas Killing Fields, which, again, you think, well, what, what am I looking for? It's, it's another very um, bleak uh, violent police investigative thriller. You can see it's kind of stamped from the same mould. Not again, not an entirely successful film, perhaps not entirely uh, kind of all of a piece, but but still very interesting. And you can see the same the same obsessive um, treatment of of the mentality of the police and the, the, the procedural aspects to investigations, and also this ambiguity in in what it takes to. Um, solve a crime or to to remove a threat to normal society.
4: One of the things I always found fascinating about Mann was that he was able to bridge that what used to be an enormous gap between television and film yeah. so easily and to go back and forth and to use his television work to speak to the film work and vice versa. Yeah, definitely or I should say Miami, vice versa. Kind of along those lines, I was curious, have you been watching the Hannibal television show?
6: I was probably put off by the the kind of the tail end of the the Hannibal films, I think. Um, Having said that, I mean, I think... um, I am a great admirer of of Harris's novels, The the Sign for Lambs and and Red Dragon, and and the the Hannibal novel, I think, is a a good ending to to that. But I think the the Red Dragon film, I found hard to get through, I think, because of, again, because of the the precedent of of Manhunter in my head, I think.
4: Yeah, I'm curious. Um, Well, actually, maybe you can answer this question because you do have students that have probably seen Red Dragon, that yeah. hadn't seen Manhunter, how do they react to it, seeing it in the opposite order?
6: Well, one of the, one of the curious things, I think, which, which came out of it, actually, those, those students who had, had seen Red Dragon, um, but then hadn't seen Manhunter, there's a, a kind of a third connection, which I think is, again, one, one which I was aware of, and what I wasn't sure that they would be aware of, it, is, is the casting of William Peterson in the CSI series because uh, the um the Gill Grison character is is has some of the same kind of background to um um Will Graham and I think I I don't know again I don't really have any kind of um um authentic or verifiable basis of this, but I think uh, some of the some of the ideas I think or some of the um uh treatment of that scene, well, what's called scene of crime, but it's the crime scene investigation um, representation, I think, grows out of Manhunter into um, the, the Brookheimer series on TV, and I think, although the Brookheimer series are um, definitely have their own formula and have their own use of, of, of music and montage sequences and, and, and so on, I think in my mind, it's not just the, the, the casting of, of William Peterson that l- links them, there is a, this, a similar kind of sense of of the the primacy of of, of science. You think of the the sequence in um, in Manhunter where they process the the note from the tooth fairy to to Lecter. That seems to me to be a, a, a kind of a deliberate um, source for the way that CSI has has, has has gone in in well, twenty years later, nearly, but you know, certainly fifteen years later, in its treatment of of forensic science.
4: No, I totally get that. When I was rereading the book recently, there's a uh, part uh, in. Uh, Red Dragon that talks about how he had written some paper on uh, bug uh, entomology, and I was just like, "Oh, wow, this is (laughs) yeah." (laughs)
6: Yeah.
4: And then even just the similarity of the names and everything too. I was like, "Okay,
6: yeah." It's um, yes. I don't know. You have to try and track down whoever whoever conceived of the series alongside Brookheimer and see exactly how honest they'd be about um, Harris as a as a source. I think. Um, I think you know, that, that's the whole bug thing. The, 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 the science of, of decomposition and, and dating also sort of timing of the time of death from, from insects is, is too much of a coincidence, I think.
4: What are you working on now?
6: I've got a couple of kind of things which I'm I'm hoping to to bring to fruition. Um, Another thing that I've done with a a colleague of mine who who now um, lives and works in the States, uh, Graham Harper, who's at Oakland University, we've had a project on for quite a few years now, um, bringing together people thinking around ideas of cinema and landscape. We we put together a collection of essays on that in 2010 and a second collection of essays in, in 2013. And we're in the process of, of trying to drag together people to write on a, a third edition of that. It's going to be Cinema and Landscape linked to a representation of suburbs. So again, there might be some crime films in there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, pictures pictures of the suburbs in, in cinema. So that that will hopefully come together in the next year or two um, as a third Cinema and Landscape um, edition. And I've, I've had a... a, a project um i've offered to a few publishers and none of whom are, are interested so far which is to look at the royal navy on television there's been a been a big splurge of, of the royal navy on television in the in the sort of 90s and 2000s but again i, I go back to my own uh youth and and childhood where there were several celebrated documentary series on on the royal navy in the 1970s um and so i wanted to do a, a kind of a an historical treatment of the way that um the Navy's uh, public image has been explored on on the TV. Um, there's there's a very good book that was published by the um, U.S. Naval Institute Press about Hollywood's relationship with the American Department of Defense uh, and particularly the Navy Department and the, and and their manipulation of their image through some very canny. Deals and some very canny um, um, arrangements with filmmakers, and obviously, again, you've got the, the, um, examples of that right up to the present with um, with um, Top Gun in the 80s and Crimson Tide in the 90s, and, and all the different examples which have which have gone through. But there isn't anything really sim- similar for the um, for the MOD in this country. Um, so, and particularly the navy as, as as an area of my interest. So I'm hoping to get that on its feet and and um, explore that. I've written little bits about the navy on television and in film before, but um, to do a, a concerted study would be would, would be good.
4: So you must have been all over when Master and Commander came out because it was tying together two of your loves, huh? Oh,
6: that's right. The curious thing is, that I haven't really written on Master and Commander. It's a curious thing. I did a little um, article on it for a, for a, um, a journal in, in this country, but it is, you're absolutely right. And everybody said, you know, this is, this is like some kind of busman's holiday. It's weird doing a film about the Navy. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great film. I mean, I think it's, it's an absolutely fantastic film. It's one of Weird's best films, I think.
4: Kind of add in your career at the time when you made Manhunter? Because I remember you from Man with One Red, Red Shoe and Easy Money before that and this seemed like such a departure for you.
7: Well, I did a play in 1978-79 called Buried Child by Sam Shepard. And it ran for a year in New York and it won the Pulitzer and everybody saw it and I played sort of a childlike but scary guy in that. And so a lot of the work that I got even for years after was I think based on that job so man I don't know man I didn't feel like that's sort of much a bit of a departure from how people saw me at that point um, I mean getting the job was probably a bigger deal than I care to remember it being. I mean it wasn't, it wasn't hard to get me actually doing the audition but the chance of me getting it seemed pretty small now looking back
4: Do you remember who were some of the people that you were up against?
7: No, I mean you don't know that I mean, I know they were, they were. He was meeting a lot of people from Steppenwolf Company from Chicago, which would mean Gary Sinise and John Malkovich, and you know. And I know that he, that's where Billy uh, Peterson came from. So there was some talk that he was trying to use a lot of people from that company. So, but I don't really know anything about who they were using, and I didn't really care, and I never asked those kind of questions.
4: How did you kind of go about uh, crafting the role of Francis Dollarhide? You know, I don't really
7: work in a way that's sort of easy to explain. I don't, I never read the book. I barely read the script. I mean, I read the lines that I have. I don't, you know, I really, didn't really know what was going on with the scenes. Um, They put me in a lot of, the the makeup was sort of intense and I had to body build for a while. You know, I gained like 30, 40 pounds. But I I don't, I'm not, I don't do a lot of preparation for parts. I sort of learn the words and learn the blocking and Sort of go with what's happening. I think the context of what the story is makes an actor seem different in different parts when he's basically doing the same thing. You know, I never acted crazy. I never raised my voice. I never didn't, you know, I never really heard anybody on screen too much. You know, the, the audition that I did, Michael would often refer to when he was directing me because he didn't, you know, he was sort of cool about letting me do whatever I sort of found my way into. But he would keep saying just don't forget the audition because apparently the audition I was scary when I did what I did which didn't seem that scary to me but he he thought it was what did you do? I didn't do much of anything I talked much more quietly than I'm talking now and I was reading with someone but I I freaked her out I mean she was really frightened and I remember feeling that I was frightening her and, and a lot of that I think came from Michael because Michael somehow I he connected to me or we connected to each other and he I sort of felt like I was doing what he wanted me to be doing or being the way he wanted me to be in some sort of unspoken way. And it's hard to explain but when you you can sort of tell when you're auditioning or even when you're acting in a play or anything that people are, the director or the audience is getting you and once they sort of get you going from there is really easy because you sort of have them and I felt like he was getting me right away. He leaned forward, he got up, he started walking around the room. Um, I was really pissed. I mean, know, this a story I've told before, but I was really angry because they had kept me waiting a long time. And so I was not particularly friendly or cordial or at anything when I came in to read. I just said, you know, I'm here to read, and then I'm going to leave. So let's get to it, sort of. But you don't, that's not usually how people really want to treat Michael Mann sort of a scary, dominating guy, but for some reason, I didn't know it <laughs> worked. Um, and so when I did the movie, he would just refer to the audition. He said, don't forget the audition. D, he would call me D, or Francis.
4: What was it like? What was that working relationship like? Because I know you've gone on to work with him several other times.
7: Just one other time, but he rarely talked to me. I mean, he, <sighs> I don't know, I mean... Again, these are things I've told to the field. but I mean, at one point he said, is there anything I can do to make the part, make it easier for you to do this part? Um, and I said, well, it'd be great if I didn't have to meet anybody who was trying to kill me or I was trying to kill them in the story, which is pretty much everybody. So I never saw anybody from the cast until I was in a scene with them. Never. And I never talked to them. When I was in the scene, I was just doing the scene. I don't think I ever talked to Billy Peterson until years later. I never met Brian Cox until years later and then this sort of memo went out apparently to all the crew and the cast that they were not to speak to me look at me make contact with me avoid me at all costs Um, they gave there were two PAs that went everywhere that I went walking in front and behind me to make sure that no one ran into me (laughs) it was not something that I would have asked for but Michael did it and it sort of created this sort of energy around me you know Another the crew was scared of me because they were sort of in danger of losing their jobs if they looked at me. It was, you know, um, it was sort of fun and interesting. Another thing happened was that I, one um, day I was in my, I guess it was in my dressing room in the studio, and the, the only two people who were allowed to talk to me were the head of the makeup team and the AD, whose name I don't remember now, but he came to my room, the AD, and said, Francis, it's going to be a little longer before we get to your shots. Wanted to let you know, and I just sort of nodded. And then it was getting dark out, and there was no light on in my room. And he said, Should I turn, "Can I turn the lights on for you?" And I said, "No, Francis doesn't use lights. Just I don't know where I, I got that from." And he said, "Okay." And then the word went out that you know I, I didn't use, I didn't like lights on ever. So I would have, to, I had to stay in my trailer all the time because it was mostly a night shoot in the dark. Because if I didn't, <laughs> if I turn the lights on but he'd probably disappointed um, but I remember Michael used to come to my trailer knock on the door and he would just come in and sit with me he would sit with me for sometimes an hour or two you know, not, not talking just sitting there it, it was just sort of interesting and I think it made it easier for me to, to feel comfortable with him and I felt connected and and I could tell that when I was shooting too that he really he sort of loved what I was doing and I could feel it I, you know he would ever, he would rarely say much but he would say a lot to he was not a very he was pretty critical of most of the the actors that I worked with but he never said anything much to me at all he would make me do takes over and over again I sometimes like 40 50 times emotional things that I think sometimes just to see if I could do it I, but that was sort of exciting too um, so it was easy it was sort of fun and interesting and. You know, it was a bigger part than I'd done before, and I liked the script, and I liked him, and the actors are good, so
4: it was a—it was a, a, was a lot of fun to do. You mentioned the um, the bodybuilding and everything. It it, it feels like such a, a physical part. Just the way that you 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 hold your hands and everything, the way that you're 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 doing that. Was that just what happened when you were on set?
7: Yeah. I mean, I weighed, I, I mean, I was so much bigger than I used to be when I did it. I was, you know, I went from 190 to like 230 or 240. And, you know, I lifted weights six days a week and it, it just changes the whole way you hold yourself and the way you move and the feeling you have toward other people. I mean, even because I'm tall, I mean, I, I didn't look that big, but I mean, I, I mean, people, my friends used to be like, what happened to you, you know? My neck went up like two inches, my arms were two inches bigger, everything was just big. I was, you know. I think mean, that was more than... I don't think I... You know, I don't really plan stuff too much. You know, I sort of go with what's happening at the moment and try to stick with the blocking, you know.
4: What was the, the makeup process like? Because you had the uh, the cleft palette and then the, the tattoo and everything. What was that? Um, how long did that take to get put on?
7: Um, well, the the tattoo was a month-long adventure because they would... Michael was very perfectionistic and wanted it to be just the way he wanted it, and so they would keep putting it on, and he didn't like it, and they would take it off, and they would bring in new people to write on, draw on me. And they were just drawing on me with, with markers. It um, sounds pretty painful after a while, and my skin got really sort of <laughs> messed up. Um, but then once they settled on it, 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 could, it would stay on for two or three days. They would put it on and then spray this sort of, I don't know, maybe like liquid Band-Aid over or something or some, something like that, so they it would, it would hold it, set it. And we didn't put it on every time because there were scenes where I didn't take my shirt off, so that I wouldn't have to have it on then. Um, The lip was really difficult. I mean, I've had a lot of makeups done, and when they only do part of your face, it's much harder than doing the whole your whole body. I mean, it's just because they had to blend it, and the blending, you know, gets screwed up and changes, and you know, they have to keep touching up. It was really a pain in the ass. It would come off when I talked, and you know, it was hard.
4: I've seen you play other crazy people since then. Um, I'm thinking, you know, specifically of, well, last action hero, but I'm thinking even like kind of, um, more restrained, like, uh, the pledge and these kind of films. Did you ever worry when you're being Francis Dollar that you might get typecast as that? No. I mean, it was a
7: drag afterwards when I was offered a lot of parts that were like that part. And in movies that were not very good, that's sort of a drag. Um, but at the time, no, I didn't think about it.
4: I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of your your theater work and some of the movies that you've made out of that. Can you tell me uh, a little bit more about what happened was? I was working on,
7: I guess, RoboCop 2, and I started to twitch. My face started twitching all the time, really dramatically, not in a way that you, mean, you think it's twitching and you look in the mirror and it's not, but this is pretty bad, and it was very dramatic and distracting and I would have to do all sorts of things to have it not do that. And I thought about it and realized that I was not happy. I mean, not not that I was not happy with that movie, but I was just not happy doing that sort of work and I was not doing the kind of work that I really wanted to be doing in my life. And so I sort of took about a year off from doing Hollywood stuff. At the time I've been writing for Hollywood too and selling scripts and I stopped doing that and I pretty much stopped acting. Um, And I decided that I was going to do a play about something that I actually had meant something to me um only to find out that when you don't do that regularly it's not that easy to have happen so it took almost eight or ten months for me to come up with what happened was I wrote about 10 or 15 plays and then that one came out of it and I picked the date July I think I picked June 12th 2000 June 12th 1991 was the date I was going to open and I started writing in September so um I finally had a play in April. And then at the time, I didn't really think I'd make a movie out of it. I just really wanted to do do anything that was sort of close to me. But as I started rehearsing and getting ready to put it on, I started thinking, this this could be a movie. And I started inviting friends of mine who worked, you know, their DPs and sound people and producers and, you know, people that I knew and asked, you know, to see if they wanted to work on it with me if we did a movie. So we did the show for five weeks as a play, and then I rehearsed off and on after that for about six months before we shot it, um, with the crew being there as much as possible. And, and so we we sort of knew all the camera moves and all the dolly moves and, you know, what size lens we'd be using and the, the pace of everything. It was all determined before we even got to the shoot because of all the rehearsal we did. And you know, we all knew our, we knew our words and knew the blocking, so... I guess by December we shot it and, you know, it took 10 days. It was really easy. Uh, you know, I know it was short, not very long shooting days. And, you know, the, one of the biggest things is that we, because you knew the words and the blocking so we could do the whole play. <laughs> so we'd have to be careful not to keep um, doing takes over and over again or going way beyond what we had planned to shoot. You know, sometimes we'd start to act and it would start to really get going. And it was hard to stop. And since I was directing until I yelled cut, we, we'd go, but... I had to be careful not to overdo the, you know, using stock because I was paying for it and we only bought a certain amount. But um it was, it was sort of an easy shoot, you know, and it was so planned out, it was also very easy to cut. Um, most of the reels have very few cuts. Some reels have less than 10 or 8 or 10 cuts in them.
4: Is that kind of the method that you've used on other stuff, like the wife and uh, Wang Dang?
7: Yeah, I did them as plays with the intention of doing it as a film later. And, you know, we did it. Well it's also... I didn't mention was when I did all those those three different projects. I didn't do them as sort of typical plays. I there was no sort of separation in the audience and the the action. I, I created like for what happened was I created a, a, an apartment in the theater, really beautiful apartment with with running water and everything worked and real simple lighting and no very little theatrical lighting, so it looked like an apartment. And the audience would sort of sit in the apartment with us. There were chairs sort of spread around, and so when we were doing it. There was no, you know, you didn't really have to block it toward the audience because the audience is all around us.
4: What is your relationship with the uh, Paradise Theater?
7: I mean, I'm the artistic director and founder, and I and our company owns the theater and the building that we perform in. But I mean, I was, it took 30 years to buy the building. But um, before we could, you know, it was the city of New York owned it, so it took a while for them to sort of work out legally what, you know, how to how to sell it to us. And I have some partners in the building,
4: but but we own the company. the company owns the building. You had mentioned that, that the um, the problem that you were having with your face. I had heard that um, RoboCop Two is a pretty difficult shoot. Um, did you have bad experiences on that one? Of 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 it being difficult?
7: Yeah. Um. Me, um. I really liked Urban Kirshner, and I thought he was wonderful. And I don't feel that everybody involved supported him the way they should have. And that the script was pretty poor. Um, you know, I like Frank Miller a lot as a person, and he's a great graphic novelist, but he can't write a screenplay, and it made it very difficult to do scenes. I mean, the scenes were just hard to act, and we would change them, and, you know, the producers would side with Frank, and, I don't know, uh, but that sort of happened. I mean, that didn't happen. That happened a lot of that, and it was really difficult,
4: um, you know? Um, kind of going back to what happened was, I mean, the the play is wonderful. The film is wonderful. It's just so emotionally raw how did you kind of uh, allow yourself to go to that place and wh- how was the audience reaction to that
7: um, when we did it as a play uh, I really tried to make it I don't know what the word is um, I just what's really was really important to me that it, that it that I was present in and, and I wrote a script that didn't require a lot of melodramatic bullshit like I didn't have to get angry here or sad there and just just two people sitting around on a, you know, on a date, you know, and, and I would talk to Karen South and say, oh, let's just make this as best we can feel like a date. Like when I come through that door, whatever happens, happens. And we'll try to stick with what we've rehearsed, but, you know, we'll go with what, you know, and, um, and that ended up being very freeing and sort of, um, made it very personal to me because I didn't really have to, you know, act too much. And the, and, you know, the typical idea of acting and the audience, we sort of, the audience would sort of tell us how to do the play because, I remember some nights we'd do the play, and I could tell that they thought that I was a real jerk, that I was this sort of condescending asshole and sort of creepy, and that, um, and they, in fact, people would like moan when I said said things and would hiss, and you know. And then another night, I could tell the audience felt that I was being sort of taken advantage of by this sort of predatory woman who was inviting me to her house on her birthday and not telling me this, and that obviously I was sort of like a damaged person. And you could feel them hating her, and it would change night to night um and it I learned a lot about you know plays and writing and, and for me acting by by letting that experience sort of happen that way and um so it was sort of an evolution that the that, that it got to the point where it became maybe i don't know what the word raw is but it it was really sort of compelling and and real um it seemed real to me, and that sort of carried over to the the movie i mean um I just wanted to be present. I didn't care if it was boring, I didn't care if it was funny. I just wanted to be talking about what I wanted to talk about and yeah. you know and sort of being there
4: as you were acting it and you're feeling the different emotions coming from the audience, does that affect your performance? Do you change how how you're acting?
7: It doesn't change how you're acting, but if somebody gets off on what you're doing either in a way that you <laughs> approve of or don't, it makes it really fun um you know it it um it's just it, the whole idea what's wonderful about acting is you you do something and you can feel whether people buy it or not and when they buy it it makes you feel energized and then you're when you get energized then they even get more energized and it sort of creates this sort of cycle which is amazing when, when it happens in a play you know um, and it can happen the opposite way you know you cannot you do something they don't buy it and then they buy it less what you did and you start feeling confident but in this case it, it seemed to work a lot that that people sort of dug what we were doing and either if it was negative or positive it, it made it sort of exciting.
4: Can you tell me about Wifey? What was that play like?
7: Have you seen the movie of it?
4: I have seen the
5: movie.
7: Um, I'm trying to, you know, it was it was a very different experience. You know, there's more people in it. Um, people had different acting styles. Um, we had a long time, we had a long rehearsal period. We started rehearsing in September off and on, you know, periodically because Lolly and Julie Haggerty both had Sort of other obligations, so we rehearsed off and on for like five, six months. Um, also, with the, also knowing that we were going to shoot it, as soon as, as soon as the movie's over, we we're going to go shoot it at this house that I owned. Um, and it was sort of a different play. It it, I, it wasn't quite as open and, and sort of um, melodramatic as, as what happened was. There were certain things that were, that sort of had to happen in it, and people getting upset about things. And I didn't I didn't like it as much the play even though there's some really cool things in it as I did what happened was. Um, but I thought it was, I I was surprised that it was, that I was able to get everybody sort of in the same place and make things sort of personal and encourage that. And, and that seemed to really work, um, sort of in a different way than, than, than what happened was. But, um, it just, in some ways I just don't like the movie or the play as much. And I, it's harder to be, you know, I don't know what the word is, but, um, I just don't have as much affection for it. Uh, but people seem to like it, so I don't know, I, you know. And you see, but yeah, you know, since I cut it too, which is sort of a major part of creating a movie, um, there are so many different ways to go with the stuff in in the in wifey or the wife than it was. And what happened was that I spent an enormous amount of time editing it. And and then when I finished, the people that had actually gave me the money, which is another whole story, said it was that it was I was contractually obligated to have it be shorter than two hours, and it was like two hours and one minute. And to cut out the one minute to get it underneath, it started this whole process where it ended up being like um, an hour and or 108 minutes. I mean, I took out 10 minutes or 12, um, which really changed the whole thing. And it's weird to watch it sometimes because it's, it's, you know, the, it's very different in feeling and in, you know, and in story in some ways than, than the original script was or the play. Um, but I mean, like I said, it happens when you make movies. Um,
4: so. I really enjoyed the chemistry between you and Wallace Sean, in
5: that one.
7: Yeah, I mean, Wally's great, and i have known him a long time, and I wrote the part for him. Um, and I have by far the sort of smallest part in the movie, because I, I I sort of felt that my position as the, the host in the house and sort of the authority figure matched sort of my directing, me as the director. Um, so I depended on a lot of my behavior and stuff to to, to sort of play have things play for me um because i don't really i don't think i have any monologues or long speeches or stuff like everybody else has and you know it wasn't really as dramatic for me even though some of the things i do say are sort of pivotal but um it was a, it was a different experience he, and a lot of like i had this limp in the in the um in the play and in the movie and the reason that happened is because wally <laughs> one day there's a lot of things that wally contributed <laughs> he said one day like you know you're you're so much bigger than me. I don't know how, you know, I'm supposed to be able to get it, get anywhere with you. I mean, I it doesn't seem fair. And I said, well, Wally, <laughs> what do you want me to do? He said, well, I got have a disability. And he said, yeah, like what? And I said, well, I'll have a terrible limp, okay? And he said, okay. <laughs> That's how he ended up with the limp. <laughs> he wanted me to be somehow disabled. Um, and there's some other funny things that happen. I mean, I'm sort of open when I'm, you know, shooting to you know, to what people sort of feel they need and in the, in, to do the part for themselves. But I mean that the the limp, and then that turned into me having sort of like a, a staff and wandering in the snow, and, and it sort of you know it changed the whole sort of shooting of it and the way it looked, which was sort of interesting and fun.
4: I seem to remember you had a very impressive beard in that one.
6: Yeah,
7: I mean I, I had a I had a sort of long goatee. Okay. You know, and my hair was still dark then, and you know, but I had this cape that I, you know, I served as robes that I wore, and sandals, and I always had a cane or a staff, and I was wandering outside with a with a flaming torch because we didn't have money to pay for lighting in the woods, and it was too hard to there was not enough power where we were shooting, so and I couldn't afford a generator, so all the all the scenes were lit by a torch, which is an, an incredibly difficult thing to do in a film because the torches only last like 40 seconds, and then they drip and they burn you and. <laughs> But um you know it's just that's how things sort of evolve when you're working.
4: So I have been looking for years for a copy of Wang Dang. Is that available anywhere? It's it's not
7: very good and I've showed it once for one night at a film festival just to sort of do it. And I've showed it once like once or twice to a, to film classes of people that I've been teaching, sort of tell them what not to do. That the script was really good and the and it was really it was very effective as a play, but it was shot really poorly which is a lot my fault because we were shooting in DV. The other movies I'd done in 35, so I was very careful about being economical. But in this one, I just shot everything and ended up not being able to use like 90% of what I shot. And it it was just sort of a very disappointing product. I cut it for two and a half years and never could make it, you know, be decent at all.
4: When I saw you a few weeks ago at the Motor City and Nightmares, you were uh, cutting something that you had just um, shot. Were you still shooting on digital now or did you move back to film
7: no i've never done film again um we shot that in with um what do we use the c3 c300 um canon a canon c300 it's, it's an amazing camera uh it, but what i shot i did a play called the shape of something squashed at my theater back in in february and march and there was it was wasn't really written with the intention of making it into a movie really at all um not that i always do anyway but um about halfway through, it, I thought, well, if I, I'm probably not going to make this into a movie? I'm not sure, but um, I would like a you know record of it." So we shot we shot for three nights for 12 hours and sort of did a documentary version of it. Um, not not a documentary version, like it, 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 it's like a movie of it, but it's it wasn't shot listed. It wasn't really. We didn't really do a production design of anything. So it's just you know I'll probably never show it anywhere, but I'm just editing it to sort of complete the process of making a document of the play.
4: Have you done that many other times
7: well I did, when I did what happened was I shot it as a with a video after the last night when the audience left and I cleared out the audience chairs um, just so that I'd have a some version of it if i didn't have, didn't end up making the movie and it was also sort of helpful in case I wanted to shoot it, which I thought I would that um, we'd have some reference and in some ways I thought that with this with the shape onmmy squash I, I could possibly shoot it at some point and it was good to have a, a version of it you know and I sort of I loved the part and i I was very disappointed that it only, we only did it for four or five weeks, and it was very different than anything else I'd ever done, and I I sort of selfishly just wanted to have, you know, be able to say, look, look, look what I did, you know, sort of thing.
4: I don't think that's selfish.
7: Yeah, and I look really different, and it's, and it's a real heavy character part. Like, I don't, even though you probably disagree, I don't feel like I do characters a lot. I sort of do me, and this was really different than me.
4: It's strange that, you know, you're... Six foot, whatever, but yet you can look so different from roll to roll to roll. I mean, you're you're a little chameleon-esque, even though you would think that you would stick out like a sore thumb.
7: Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of low-key and sort of go with what's going on around me, and but, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's always such a treat when you show up and stuff for me. Oh,
7: thanks. But this thing I just did is really different. My one of my kids came. They don't really see me do much, but they one of the I sort of both wanted them. I want both them to come and. One of them said, You know, I've never seen you in a part where it didn't feel like I was watching you. It's like, Oh, nice. Which is sort of, you know, nice. I mean, I started acting late in my life, and I I feel like I have a certain amount of skill at it now, but I've never really felt like an actor. So it was really nice that he said that.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I was curious, how did you get into acting anyway? Um,
7: I was living in a commune. Well, there's a lot of different ways I got into it, but I was living in a commune in Boston when I was. 23 or 4. And a woman from BU, Boston University, who was a sociology film major or something, was doing, wanted to do a movie on different kinds of families. And she picked our commune as sort of an alternative family. Mm -hmm. Um, And she shot for for weeks, you know, um, house meetings and dinners and just sort of us hanging out. And then she cut it together and months later she invited us to screening at at boston university and i went and they started playing the movie and as soon as i came on everybody started laughing i mean i wasn't doing anything i wasn't trying to be funny i was just sort of being who i was and i did also notice that i was very sort of odd that my behavior was weird and i'd never seen myself on camera before i spoke very quietly and making all these sort of asides that didn't really make any sense but i seemed to enjoy terribly and and I was watching the thing, and the audience reaction was sort of dramatic, and I realized then that I could probably be in movies that so, you know it wasn't hard to figure that, so I was the time musician, and I moved to New York and was doing an album and playing with people and doing record dates and I started writing music for a play and out of having done I maybe mean, having been around the play a lot that I was writing music for, I sort of thought, well, I could do this, you know, so I just one day I just quit I quit playing and Started um uh, going on auditions and got a, got jobs right away. I mean I, I had to lead in the play like two weeks after I started acting. Within a, within six months or so I got this job that I mentioned earlier called Buried Child, which is this amazing, amazing play, which I had no right to be in or I <laughs> mean you know, I really never acted very much. And it's just one of the great plays, great American plays ever written. And by the time that closed I would already done four movies. So within a year and a half or a year of when I started doing acting. I was making the money at it and was sort of getting to be known. Uh, it's happened very quickly.
4: You know, you have done so many different types of roles and worked with so many different types of directors. I mean, some of the, the greats, you know, Chimino and um, Mann and uh, Cassavetes and all this. Uh, who do you kind of, when you talk to people and you do you ever have to recommend your own stuff or do you ever say, this is something that I'm really proud of?
7: Um, yeah, I mean, not a whole, I mean, sometimes like, uh, you know, I, like, I have you ever seen me in Louie? Yes, I have seen you in Louie. Yes. I mean, see a lot of people haven't seen that. Some people see You And sometimes, you you know, people come over and say, oh, man, I love that thing you did in this thing. And I say, well, have you seen this other thing? Just, you know, it's just really a conversation. But, um, especially when I do like conventions and I'm signing autographs and stuff and most people are sort of there because they know me from horror and, you know, sci-fi stuff have really no knowledge of my doing like my own movies or doing sort of straight movies, which is fine, but it's, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, you should, you know, if you really like this, you might like something that's not sort of horror oriented, but, you know, um, but I'm not a big promoter of myself. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to sell myself to people except unless there's money involved.
4: I had mentioned The Pledge before. I really enjoyed that movie. I don't know how many people saw that one, but it it just seemed to fly under the radar, at least around here. Yeah. And that one was uh, just tremendous. And again, you kind of had that uh, threat level going. So, um, you know, just that low rumble of you in that film, and I really appreciated that.
7: The thing that was disappointing about the movie, which is not Sean's fault, um, Sean Penn, the director, but they sort of ran out of money at the end. The producers of that film were the same producers of Battleship Earth. Is it the name of that movie? And that movie, that movie Battleship Earth opened toward the end of the shoot of, um, the pledge. And I think the producers sort of pulled the plug on the pledge, um, from what I gathered, because I had, I didn't have a lot of scenes in the movie. I had probably seven or eight, but three or at least three of them had not been shot. Um, when that happened, when they pulled the plug. And so that a lot of the scenes that I had in the film never got filmed, which sort of showed that I'm not the killer and that it wasn't me and it was somebody else and sort of showed me as a completely different person than you see in the film. Um, So that film was always sort of disappointing. And one of the scenes they cut was with Nicholson that we hadn't shot. And then there was a scene they did shoot with Jack that, that I really loved that they cut as well. Um, So my sort of take on the film from having been in it and what people see is really different. I mean, part of the reason that I did it was because it wasn't a killer and part of the reason that Sean wanted me to do it was because he thought it'd be interesting to have me do it um, and have people suspect me and then not it not be me. But the scene that proves that it's not me was never shot.
3: The
4: movie affected me so much that I went and uh, tracked on the book and read that, so I kind of... Knew what was going on um, on subsequent viewings a little bit more, so maybe that's
3: why I oh, yeah. don't
4: think of you as the killer. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. But uh, yeah, because that was, I mean, just, um, it's such an amazing cast with that one. It's like everyone in that film is someone who I really respect. There's so many great people in the movie.
7: Yeah, I mean, Harry Dean Stan and Helen Mirren and Sam Shepard and Benicio del Toro. I mean, it's like, it's really an amazing cast people. And Sean is really—it's really—I mean, Sean's very different. I mean, i have never acted with him, but I can tell he's very different as a director than as an actor. He's very loose and sort of fun and funny, and and I got to know him really well. he's on the board of my theater, and I got to know Rob Wright pretty well and his kids. And um, it was sort of—it was a nice experience.
4: So, what are you currently working on now? Um,
7: about a week ago, I just shot Charlie Coffin's doing a TV series called How and Why. That we did the pilot for it. Um. And I guess we'll find out sometime in this couple months whether that it's going to be picked up by FX and then whether, you know, I'll be in it, but I would imagine that I'll probably be in it if it gets picked up. So I'm working on that. I just finished that. Um I just did this HBO thing called Leftovers. The Leftovers. It's a, I don't really know what it's about. <laughs> um it's about, uh, well, it's by the guy I wrote Walt Lost, and it's about the world after mysteriously 180 million people disappear one night.
4: Oh, right. It's that, uh, comic rapture thing yeah yeah Um, and just uh picked up the book
7: yeah so i did that which i I don't know if i'll be on again because i'm not sure what's happening with it um you know i'm writing a play to do my theater in august possibly see if i get the play done um you know i might i don't know there's a couple other things you know but nothing you know huge right now it's not like i'm about to go to australia for 16 weeks to do a huge movie i'm mostly just here in new york
4: should I ask you about your time in Detroit um, when you were here doing Collision Course or should we just leave that for another time?
7: Um, well, the whole Collision Course thing was really a disappointment because they had offered me the job months before we shot and I turned it down repeatedly. And then this guy, Bob Clark, was going to direct it, who made Porky's. you know. He's a really talented guy and I really liked him. And he flew me to LA and he put me in the room with the writers and they changed the entire script so that I would sort of find it doable. And then I agreed to do it. Um, and I passed up on this other movie to do it. And I liked Bob a lot. And we went down to Wilmington, North Carolina, where I'd done Manhunter, which I really liked living there. And it was I was all ready to have a great time. And the first day I went to the set, I got my costume and I sat in my trailer all day and they never called me, which is really unusual. And then the next day I went in and I got my costume again. And it was like half the day I went by and nobody called me. And then the producer came to my camper and said, Tom, we have good news and great news and I said, Oh, geez, what's that? And he said, Well the good news is we fired Bob Clark. And I said, Oh, I like Bob. And he said, Oh no, we got something much better And I said and I said, Well what's the great news? And he said, Well we're going back to the original script And I'd you know, I'd already agreed to this one so I sort of had to do it and I didn't I couldn't go back and do the other movie that I dropped and so the whole experience was sort of a drag from that point on because I was doing the script that I hated, and uh, and I, you know, that I'd counted on not being in that situation, but you know, so it was a drag. Um, otherwise, it was sort of it was sort of fun to do, but I mean, it was it was not the, the script just wasn't what I expected. So,
4: and you uh, said you actually shot in Detroit on that movie. Yeah, yeah, we shot at The
7: did we? Let me see. Yeah, we shot. I know. I because I know that I stayed at the. The Ponsa train? Is that what it's called? Yeah. The big hotel downtown. And it wasn't on, it wasn't on RoboCop two because we shot that in Houston. Um, yeah, we shot at the car show. We went out to the, you know, um, I don't think we shot the whole movie there. We shot for like a week or two. Um, it was okay. You yeah. know, it was really dangerous too. I remember one day we were, they said, you know, don't go out, don't go out of the hotel. And I said, come on, you gotta be kidding. I said, it's like tourists everywhere. And then like two days later, there was an undercover cop who was out on the plaza by the hotel and he was he or she was murdered. Um, and I really wanted to see Detroit, so I rented a car and I was driving, and they, when they found out that I was doing that, they flipped out. I was driving through all these crazy neighborhoods, and, you know, it was just all like, bombed out Berlin. Um, but I, don't, I just wanted to see what Detroit was
4: like. So is there anything else about Manhunter I should ask you about? Um, hmm,
7: not that I, you know, not that I, haven't, most, I mean, I've told you pretty much everything I tell everybody, and most of the high points, like how I got the job, and how he directed me, and you know the makeup and the tattoo, and you
4: know. <laughs> now you're right that that um, the finale with you being um, killed. I heard that there were like five or six different cameras all running at the same time. There may have been two, but I'm, I
7: don't think even that. I they they there was a special effects gag they were going to do at the end that showed me getting hit with the with the gunshots, and it didn't work, so they had to sort of come up with something different and. So what they did was they would shoot like two seconds and then I would look as if I'd been hit and they'd stop the camera and they would put, they would took, they had cans of brains, you know, like the food brains from some animal and blood and they'd throw it on the wall behind me and then they would start shooting again. So when, when those jump cuts happen, it almost looks as if I'm being hit by the bullets and the stuff's flying out and getting up on the wall. Um, that's the story about the end being shot. Um, if that's maybe. And the other thing was that they put me on the floor and had that blood around me. I sort of looked like Christ, and there was this sort of big pot, puddle of blood. And then they left me there because it was the last night. And they had to shoot all of the stuff, and they wanted to come back and shoot me again. But they left me so so long that the blood started to it dried up a lot and thickened. And when they finished shooting, they couldn't get me off the floor. I was stuck. And then once they got me off the floor, my clothes were stuck to me and everybody wanted to leave because it was the last day and it was like a Sunday, it was like Monday morning. And it took hours and hours to get my costume off me. It's not a thing about being shot at the end. Also, they brought in, they brought in like real state troopers to play the state troopers who, you know, sort of go through the house after the whole thing's over. And when they would come in the kitchen where I was laying on the floor, I would hold my breath and not look like I was breathing, look like I was dead. <laughs> They all thought I was really bad. And they would get all freaked out and said, I think he's dead. No, no, he can't be dead. He's an actor. No, he's dead. Look, he's not breathing. And they'd leave and they'd come back and they'd say, you know, hold my breath again.
3: talking about Manhunter now there was a second adaptation of the source novel Red Dragon in 2002 it was adapted by Ted Talley who had written a screenplay originally for The Silence of the Lambs which Jonathan Demme did but Red Dragon was not directed by Jonathan Demme it was directed by Brett Ratner so some folks don't necessarily like Brett Ratner they have a, another name that rhymes with his last name that they sometimes use which i won't (laughs) use here in case he wants to punch me in the face anyway so red dragon gentlemen what did you think of red dragon
4: i was very angry at the idea of the necessity for red dragon uh it just felt like it was a cash move when i went to see it the first time i was very very angry We had, in the interim, this is 2002, and Signs of the Lambs had come out in 1990 where Anthony Hopkins played Hannibal Lecter. And since then, Hannibal Lecter had become a part of our pop culture. Unfortunately, Brian Cox's performance did not bring that into being, but it was Hopkins' performance. Several lines of his have become catchphrases. I mean, we even had Ace Ventura and all these different characters quoting him. It was pretty much, to me, a way of Hollywood just saying, hey, we have this extra property out here. Why don't we go back and make a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, even though that film kind of already exists? So they really kind of um, remade Manhunter or readapted Red Dragon in a way that really fits with two thousand and two filmmaking. So it I would say that it doesn't even fit if you were to watch this before Silence of the Lambs, it is flashy and overstylized in the wrong way. It had taken the tropes of the ten years between Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon and use those, and those tropes aren't necessarily the best tropes in the world, so it felt to me like it was much more influenced by something like Seven than it was by Sons of the Lambs. There are, there are some shock cuts in there, some screams on the soundtrack that Basically, are just there to upset the audience um, for no good reason, and so it doesn't necessarily know how to build tension in the proper way. I will say it's a much more close adaptation to Red Dragon the book, but as I said before with Manhunter, I think that it was... That was more in keeping with the tone of the book, whereas this one kind of goes away from the tone of Red Dragon and picks up the tone of other serial killer films, which really wasn't even an in industry until Silence of the Lambs, but definitely was afterwards. I can't fault any of the performances in the movie. I think they are all pretty darn solid performers. I mean, you don't get a better cast than you do with Ray Fiennes as, as Dollar Hyde, Ed Norton as Will Graham, Emily Watson as Reba, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Freddie Lowndes, Harvey Keitel doing a pretty good job as Jack Crawford, though he's not really given a whole lot to work with in this one, it feels like to me. He's nowhere near Farina's level. But yeah, it just, um, even with those great performances. Yeah, there's one name you conspicuously left out there. Which one was that? And that would be Hopkins. Yeah, Hopkins as <laughs> as Hannibal Lecter, but he's basically just doing the same Lecter that he had been he's, doing and he's in a few him other turned up plays. to
5: 11 because there's none more black.
3: But the thing with this film, in, in and this is where it's supposed to be before Silence of the Lambs, but you really would, if you never saw Silence of the Lambs, you don't know anything about Silence of the Lambs, if you watch this one first... It would make no sense because there are things that draw from Silence of the Lambs, and there's so much of a focus on Lecter, especially this preamble that we don't get in Manhunter where it's like 15 minutes of Lecter in 1980 – being a bon vivant and going to the opera a classical concert and having people over for dinner and, and just living his life and all of this. And some of these things are kind of alluded to in Manhunter about, you know, when, uh, will Graham and Lecter meet and then the whole getting stabbed in the gut and all that stuff. So all of that is the preamble to the film. That's all in there because anyone who is going to make this film said, well, We need to put more Lecter in. We need more, you know, crispy Lectery goodness because that's what people have come to expect from Anthony Hopkins playing Lecter. So we need more of that in there. And that is horrible. And there's several things that are horrible about that opening. And the one thing that drove me absolutely crazy about Hopkins as Lecter in here is that ponytail because I don't believe (laughs) that Dr. Hannibal Lecter would have a ponytail. He looks ridiculous.
5: It's almost like they threw Silence of the Lambs, Manhunter, and Hannibal, the Ridley Scott one, in a blender, and this is what came out. And it didn't – and they didn't use a filter. So all the big chunky chunks came out as opposed to a refined version of what was – worthwhile from those three films on the internet people know my feelings on red dragon very well it was the first article i sent to film thread and that's the one that got me the job over there Uh, i've made it no secret that yes i felt that was a a purely a cash grab film and i feel that stylistically it's all over the place it it to me is one of the earmarks of when danny elfman stopped making scores Once he got tired of people saying, you're nothing but recycling Nino Rota, he went, oh, yeah, well, let me make my own things. So it's going to sound like a hammer horror movie in this one with the kind of ridiculous shot. Comparing the way you mentioned how in um, Manhunter, when he first goes into, I believe it's the Leeds house and looks at the bloody scene and you get that one little synthesizer sting. But that's it. And then the rest is more like ambient noise when Ed Norton's Graham goes in, you get a cue that I was waiting for Christopher Lee and Ingrid Pitt to pop up. Totally uh, inappropriate, in my opinion, for a supposedly reality-based drama. Yeah,
4: Manhunter is such a quiet film that when you get those pieces of music, it's like, okay, this means something. And when I was watching red dragon, I was riding the volume control on my remote control. Like not, you know, it was just like, Oh my God, it is so loud. And now what are they saying? And I'm like, you know, pumping it up to 50 mm-hmm. and then oh my god here comes some music and it just blows the speaker out kind of thing it's like what is going on with this thing why why is it so up and down up and down up and down and it i guess that's what they would consider a cinematic thrill ride these days so it's like watching a roller coaster make sure you hang on when you watch
5: red dragon the new film from brett ratner <laughs> and it's just oh god uh, it, it director of cinematic uh thriller classics like rush hour and money
3: talks But I remember seeing this in the theater, and I actually liked it in the theater. I didn't like it when I just rewatched it. And I think part of the reason why was instead of watching it on its own merits, now I've seen Manhunter so many times that the whole time I'm comparing it against the Michael Mann film. So there are scenes, there are dialogue that is exactly the same but Extremely it doesn't exactly it just doesn't have the same weight one of the things with that, that came off in in my head was the you took your gloves off line yeah. and when you compare the way that that peterson does it against the way ed norton does it there's much more weight in in the michael mann film
1: you took your gloves off didn't you, you son of a bitch
3: You took your gloves off, you touched her with your bare hand, and then you wiped her down. But when the gloves were off, did you open her eyes? The other thing that I also liked, and I thought, you know, if he wanted to be flashy and really be strong with the direction in this film, he should have staged the fuck-off scene with the reporter – Philip Seymour Hoffman, much like it was done in Manhunter, where he picks yeah. him up and he, yeah.
5: you know, gets <laughs> picks him car. up and immediately turns into two very noticeable, uh, stuntmen. Damn it. HD. The director figured you wouldn't be able to see that.
3: No, but he, he <laughs> He picks him up and in Manhunter breaks the, the windshield of the car. In Red Dragon, he just sort of like grabs him by the scruff of the neck and tells him to fuck off. It, and <laughs> it's like you could have <laughs> done so much thing. more with that. It, like when, when you play the scenes that are in both films against each other, they're really um, – they, they don't play as well. And then for me, the ending of the film, that, that was the big one for me.
4: There are so many things like so I listened to John Badham's book um, on directing a few weeks ago, and we had that interview with him. So go to projection-boot.com and download the interview with John Batham. But one of the people that he interviewed was Brett Ratner, and they were talking about the scene where Norton and Hopkins – are talking in prison in the dungeon, you know, because <laughs> that, that, that's where we keep our, our criminals. But anyway, he's he, in the dungeon and there was a big discussion between Norton and Ratner about how his characters should react to Lecter. And of course, Ratner wanted to play it big because he likes to play it big and he wanted Norton to be really shook up at this point. And Norton wanted to play it small and, they came up with the agreement that he will keep his cool while he's talking to Lecter. And then after he's done, he goes into another room and takes off his, his suit coat and you see the sweat stains under his arm, which to me is almost too subtle. And I kind of like the, the performance that Peterson gives. He's it's not a big performance when Lecter starts talking about, you know, do you know why you caught me? But he is visibly rattled, and I think that's okay
5: that he is rattled. Little ticks, like when his head kind of twitches at that part where he says, Would you like to leave me your home phone number? There's just like this little moment where Peterson just kind of goes, His head kind of twitches, and he goes, No. And he delivers it really dryly, but the look in his eyes, you could tell that's if they were going to do the same shot, that's when you would see the sweat
4: stains. Well, and he loses it towards the end when he's pounding on the door to let him out and everything. I was like, okay, this works. You know, he's to this emotional level and him going out for the air outside, you know, running through the prison and and gasping for air outside to me was all very effective. And I almost wonder if it's that the space that they're in in hannibal in sorry in red dragon is not that same confined space that they shot the same scene in with manhunter where when he wants to get away from dr Lecter, he can just turn and walk down the hall and get out of Lecter's eyesight there's no same confined
3: space which is a carryover like i said from silence of the lambs there's this yeah. whole like he's in the dungeon gothic horror but that's not really reality the the reality of someone like Lecter who would be locked in an institution slash prison. If you've ever been to a federal prison, which I have, you know, to do stories, it's very white and institutional. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. look like it does not look like a medieval dungeon, you know? And to me, the whole pulling these tropes forward or backward, whatever you want to say it with this film from Silence of the Lambs and then, like I said, comparing it against Manhunter, I, I wrote down in my notes, I go, this feels like hollow karaoke. That <laughs> it, it is what I feel like. It just feels hollow. It just feels like people are going through the motions, and it's, you're not getting, like I said, the hollowness of Lecter. You're not getting the hollowness of, of Will Graham. You're not getting the hollowness of Dollar Hide. As a matter of fact, I write in my notes, I go, Ray Fiennes looks too good. I'm like, Tom <laughs> Noonan looks like an alien. Yes, Can, he does. yes. You he know, does. know, there is all of this stuff in there. And. Like I said, the ending really did it for me as well. Um, also, let's just talk about Lecter. I mean, Hopkins is much more loud compared to Brian Cox. Brian Cox is much more quiet and managed, and um, and he's – he, I, I think he, it's a smarter read of that character than, than what Hopkins does here. Now He's I also think, playing Hannibal, uh,
5: Hannibal Lecter, not Silence of the Lambs Lecter, because Silence of the Lambs Lecter, for all his overtness, is pretty restrained. This is now yeah. the Lecter that the audience is expecting from their memories, not actually the character. And since that's supposed to be before that, he should actually be even more restrained.
3: Yeah, exactly. So all of this, like I said, it, it doesn't really work. And then the um, – can, can I go to the ending? Because I've brought it up three times. right. Now.
4: <laughs> go for the, it. I know you're just champing at the bit. The, but before you do that, Rob, let me just say that I'm really glad you clarified when you said, I've been to federal prison, and then you had to add four
3: stories. <laughs> it's true. I have.
5: Yeah,
4: because
3: if <laughs> I had know. said that, I would have been like, because I've been to Fredville prison, Prison. dot, dot, But But the whole thing with the ending, I don't believe that Brett Radner puts enough – uh, stuff into the film that makes sense for Dollar Hyde to show up at the Graham's house. And when he shows up there, it's like why did he show up there? It doesn't make any sense that he would show up there. And then the other thing is is that it makes more sense for all of that to happen away from the family, like in in Manhunter. Right. And then there's the whole thing where the house burns. But somehow, magically, the book that explains all of his fantasies and all of his really bad traumas of his life has been miraculously saved, and it's in perfect condition, and we can read about who Francis Dollarhide was. It's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't work at all. I'm like, even if it was in some fireproof safe, those fireproof safes don't last that long if you have a big fire burning like that.
5: Just that book. That yeah, book, that book I takes away. Everything we were talking about about the mystery of the manhunter Dollar hide It's it almost negates the need to have Will Graham. in it if you got a if you've got the cliff notes of serial killer Francis Dollar Hyde, a how to or I guess we could call this Francis Dollar Hyde for Dummies. I had mentioned seven
4: before, Rob had mentioned seven before. Oh, yeah. That's where the seven the just notebooks
5: come. Oh god, yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah, and then there's this whole thing with let's just compare Molly's, okay? The the character in Manhunter is much more sympathetic, believable, we get more of her, we understand her more. It just seems like the one in Red Dragon's like, yeah, he's married and that's the wife. It's just she 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 can play so much more of a role which man gives her. It doesn't give her a lot, but gives her enough. And it just seems like in this film they didn't even bother to go there.
4: Let's talk about Frank Whaley. Who shows up at one point? We don't really get very much from Reba's co worker and Francis's co worker. And we have that nice scene that we had talked about before where the the guy is, you know, finds something in Reba's hair and taking it out, and that whole reinterpretation by Dollarhide as he's watching them. In this one, Frank Whaley, as soon as he comes on screen, he's just like, Hi, I'm Frank Whaley. I'll be your slime ball today. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it's ridiculous.
4: And he's just, like, leering at her. And just, yeah, he's so, like evil in just this like 30 second role it's like really you had to play it that broad and then when he gets shot it's just like oh yeah good i'm glad he shot i'm you know frank whaley basically in movies that i like he lives to die you know it's like come on bring him out let's get him you know where's where's brett what yeah So let's get him dead as soon as possible. But yeah, he's just, he's so broad in this film, and he's just like, oh, Reba, you know, sexy mama. And it's like, oh, come on, this is just bad. You know, so it's almost it's like Dollar direct- did her a
5: service. It's a com- comedic director who does over the top comedies creating the slimeball character. He's playing him, once again, up to 11, just like Lecter's, just like Hannibal's, uh, I mean, um, Hopkins is playing Lecter. It's yeah. it's turning it up almost like the director saying, so the dummies understand. Whereas I feel that's a statement that Michael Mann has probably never said in his cinematic career except for that remake of a TV show we shall not speak of.
4: Stephen Lang who really isn't that well-known, even though he's been in just a ton of stuff, Stephen Lang, his performance as Freddie Lowndes, I thought was even superior to Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, rest in peace. But I, cause I think that he, he was the slime ball yes. and it made sense for him to be the slime ball. And when he gets confronted by dollar Hyde, we f- really feel his fear and then when it comes to Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ray Fiennes it's just like this is Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ray Fiennes, and they are in a scene from this film called Red Dragon and action. Freddie Lance. Your photograph. No. No what?
3: No. Not really no. please. please. Are you mad? Yes. Do you imply that I'm queer?
4: Oh God no. Before me, you're a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming, and you recognize nothing. You're an ant in the afterbirth. It is your nature to do one thing correctly. Tremble. But fear is not what you owe me. No lounge. You and the others. You owe me
7: all.
6: We have one more piece of work to do.
7: If he takes off the best guy instead now. Go. Open your eyes.
6: Open your eyes! Uh, you read this
1: a shape recorder. Go. I have had a great privilege. I have seen with wonder and awe the strength of the
2: red dragon. All I wrote about him were lies. Will Graham made me write them to pull him into a trap in Washington, district of Columbia. Will Graham, you will learn from my own lips how much you have to dread because I was forced to lie. He will be more merciful to me than to you. You will lie awake in fear of what the red dragon will do. I will be a testament to the truth
6: of this. You did very well. Please, no.
1: No? No what? Not me. Not not me. Why did you write lies, Mr. Lowndes? Graham told me to lie
3: me
2: will you tell the truth now yes about me my work
3: oh yes yes
2: my becoming yeah y'all yeah. yeah
1: i am the dragon and you call me insane you are privy to a great becoming and you recognize nothing oh. you are an ant in the afterbirth It is in your nature to do one thing correctly. Before me, you rightly tremble. But fear is not what you owe me, Mr. Lowndes. You owe me all.
4: Yeah, it just felt like a night at the actor's studio versus the real emotion I felt between Tom Noonan and Stephen Lang. And you could take Tom Noonan and Stephen Lang today and put them in a scene. And I'm not saying that we have to cast players that aren't necessarily as recognizable or as well-known as Ray Fiennes and Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's okay to have bigger names in this film. But I think that they these two actors bring more intensity to their roles, and probably it 's enhanced by the fact that Tom Noonan, even though he 's one of my favorite actors in the world, he isn 't this household name. Right. You know, so it is nice and Stephen Lang, even though he's in one of the (laughs) biggest (laughs) blockbuster films of all time, again, it's like, Oh, that's that dude, you know, we don't know who these guys are and putting them in the in scenes together, it's like, yeah, this makes total sense. This is wonderful to have these two actors, you know, going at it as opposed to it felt very stylized and formalized in Red Dragon. And you know, it's funny because when we came into this conversation I actually didn't mind Red Dragon when I watched it again last week, but the more I talk about Manhunter, the more Red Dragon just kind of makes me angry.
5: I will say this. It, reminds, it feels like a version of Be Kind, Rewind, but done with big actors. They're, they're swaying Manhunter, basically. And I know that we, as Manhunter fans, depending on when we saw it, I know not everybody saw Manhunter first. We're kind of predisposed to hate the movie, but I also realized that if you take a movie in a different direction and put your own spin on it, I can deal with that because I always point back to a movie that I was predisposed to hate called Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. I had noticed, des- I saw no need for it. It felt like a total cash grab to me, yet I can accept it for what it is because it took the pieces and went off in its own different direction. Whereas there, are, I swear it's like 60% of the dialogue in Red Dragon is word for word Manhunter. It's so photocopied that how can I not compare the two when you do that?
3: Which is why I'm hoping that, Mike, you'll go in and put these dialogues against each other. Because I think people need to hear them, how they sound in our heads. Particularly
5: the, we... way, the way that uh, Hopkins delivers the Cox lines that are so creepy. They're not creepy at all when I hear Hopkins deliver them in this movie. They just – they don't get under your skin. Cox got under your skin and was unsettling.
3: See, but he's supposed to get under your skin because he's Hannibal Lecter. It's kind of like, oh, it's Dracula. You're supposed to be creeped out.
5: Blah! Well, think of the intro of him versus uh, how we get him with his back to the wall and you and we have to wait for him to groggily roll around in Manhunter to present himself, whereas – in Silence of the Lambs, we get that, that that tracking shot, and you get around the corner in the Dungeon of Doom, and he's like, hi, I'm your serial killer.
4: I don't even think that he's doing a good Hannibal Lecter impersonation <laughs> in this film, because he doesn't even sound like he's British anymore. <laughs> he seems to have taken on a lot of Clary Starling's accent in this, <laughs> so he kind of treads this weird line of like a, a British guy who moved to the South a long time ago – And that's not necessarily the voice that I got from Silence of the Lambs. I think that had this Anthony Hopkins redone dialogue from Silence of the Lambs, it wouldn't even sound the same because he is just in such a different place with this
3: character. And just talking about Lecter overall, it's interesting is on one of the documentaries on that two-disc set that I have, that there were several people that were considered for Elector before Brian Cox, and then, obviously, uh, Anthony Hopkins. But uh, the list was John Lithgow, Mandy Patinkin, Brian Dennehy, and I even read somewhere that Michael Mann was thinking of William Friedkin at one point and having him do it.
5: <laughs> well, this is a guy who uh, said, okay, I'm going to make you guys scared while we're shooting The Exorcist. Ready? One, two, three, go. Pulls out gun and shoots it. That puts your actors on edge. It also... Makes them wonder if they're working with a madman. I can kind of see Dennehy
4: and Patankin. I can actually, really I can see, all see those Dennehy, guys. to
5: be honest, because he's always been underrated. And whenever he has played a creepy character, hes I felt he's done it very well
3: because it's kind of against type for him. I could see Lithgow because Lithgow's done, you know, Creepers before. I mean, go back to Blowout.
4: Well, I th- I think it was Dennehy that actually said to man. I'm gonna do you a favor. Here's this guy I've been working with, Brian Cox, you should use him instead. And for an actor to do that, I think is just so big of him. And you know, I think that he really made the right decision by going with
5: Cox. I had such great joke opportunity there, but we fought it for like an hour and a half. I'm still not gonna take it. Man went with
4: Cox. I have to say one of the weirdest things about Red Dragon being a 2002 film, because they don't really say, let's set this in the 80s. There is nothing that really says this is 1986 or whatever, 81 when the book was written, whatever it is, because the whole premise of how Dollar Hyde was finding his victims is completely moot by this point, because this is all... Him working at a photo lab, which I'm sure that a lot of those have gone out of business, going uh, working at a photo lab and processing the home movies of these people. And that is the way that they finally cracked the case is who processed the film. And in 2002, Joe and Jane Average probably – barely remember the days of home movies that weren't shot on vhs and even by 2002 shooting movies on a vhs player is a vhs recorder is passe oh, yeah. so you have robbed the film <laughs> of that and i don't think they really even came up with a good explanation as to you
3: know how they replaced that no it's not done very well in here at all
5: Sometimes you have to understand that you may have no choice but to put your movie in a certain time frame because it does not make sense otherwise. The whole idea of the calls are coming from inside the house doesn't work in the cell phone age. You just can't do that. So if if a, pl- if a major plot point involves what we will now consider ancient technology since, you know, everything... That technological, technological that happens today changes every two years. You, you either got to come up with a new solution that makes sense or you're going to have to set it in the time frame it needs to be in for that plot point to work. Well, it's funny, even when we go back to how Graham caught Lecter,
4: <laughs> the, the whole thing in the book or in, in Manhunter is, you know, oh, I was talking to him. And saw this book, and so that I went to a payphone to call Jack
5: Crawford. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There you go.
4: I don't know. I feel a little bad picking on uh, Anthony Hopkins, but then after – that he did the Hannibal movie which I just I couldn't stand Hannibal and I, I don't know have you guys read the book or watched
3: Hannibal I saw it in the theater and all I remember is him feeding Ray Liotta his brain that's all yeah I
5: remember. I'll be honest the whole movie exists for that scene it, it feels like the whole movie exists just for that scene when I read the book
4: I was very disappointed and Whatever, when I'm when when not alone when my wife read the book <laughs> and she read the end scene where Hannibal and Clarice go off into right. the sunset. Yeah, they go
5: they become Mickey and Mallory. Yeah.
4: She actually physically threw the book across the room. <laughs> My wife has a deep respect for books. Like, if you go to look at our home library, none of the spines are cracked at all. The way that she reads books is just, you know, they are in pristine condition. So for her to throw a book across the room in disgust is a really big deal. And I could totally see that. Like, I was dreading her reading that book because she read it after me. And I was not pleased to say the least. And for, you know, I was just like, Oh God, I can't, I am waiting for this explosion. And sure enough, it happened. (laughs) Yeah. It was just, it was just shit. The, the idea of it. And, you know, I guess really Thomas Harris is to blame that he would even continue down this path. I mean, it's funny. I got into an argument years and years ago with a friend of mine about um, a scene that, they have in Silence of the Lambs, and I said, oh, wasn't that clever that Ted Talley went back into Red Dragon and took something that Dr. Chilton was talking about and moved it into Silence of the Lambs, and my friend said, no, 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 that was in Silence of the Lambs. And I'm like, no, it was in Red Dragon. So then I went back just recently and reread both books.
0: I'm going to show you why we insist on such precautions. On the afternoon of July 8, 1981, he complained of chest pains and was taken to the dispensary. His mouthpiece and restraints were removed for an EKG. When the nurse leaned over him, he did this to her. The doctors managed to reset her jaw, more or less, save one of her eyes. His pulse never got above 85, even when he
4: ate her tongue. That bit is in both books. And I guess I should have known at that point that Thomas Harris, though a great writer, is a rather lazy writer. (laughs) And that him then continuing on his path of doing Hannibal and then the exorable Hannibal Rising, which is just absolute shit. That to me should have been my, you know, yeah. the the warning that Harris is thin on ideas.
3: Well, you have to I, give him credit at least this way: he rips himself off instead of other people.
5: I give him that credit, but after Hannibal, I believe Red Dragon, that the possibility of me, of me even giving Hannibal Rising a shot didn't exist. The same way that I I've not watched the Hannibal show until I've heard enough people whose opinions. I trust, particularly Brad Jones of the Cinema Snob, who is one of the biggest Manhunter he probably rivals me in his love of Michael Mann, says, you gotta give it a shot. It's actually going in the direction you probably would want it to go into. I have not watched it. I plan to marathon it soon, especially since, you know, I really want to be able to read my Twitter feed again, and I can't read it whenever it has a season finale, because people just don't understand the whole concept of spoilers anymore now. I'm the
4: same way with uh, Game of Thrones. It's like I know every beat that has happened on that show, thanks to Facebook. It's like, oh, the mountain killed that guy and crushed his head. Okay. (laughs) I have no idea who these people are, but I know what happened on last week's episode. And
5: I didn't ask for this info, and now it's going to be resting in the back of my head when I finally decide to watch this show. Thanks, internet. Speaking of the Hannibal television show, I watched the first three episodes
4: and then I turned it off, and then tried to watch more for this podcast just to you know try to have experienced all of it. And um, Mads Mikkelsen, I think does, I think he does a better job being hannibal lecter than anthony hopkins had been in red dragon he really captures that malevolent creepiness i think he is much more on that same level as brian cox was you don't
5: see that emotion and no ponytail right no no ponytail either this is a man who wants you to know how classy he is because that makes what's going on behind the scenes to him so much more entertaining He strikes me almost as like one of those, like almost like a marquee de Sade type character who's trying to keep it quiet.
4: Yeah, I think a man of wealth and taste, even in whenever this was set, be it the 80s or be it uh, 2002 when Red Dragon came out, I don't see that man, that character having
5: a ponytail. I just don't see it. A balding man with a ponytail tells you so much about him that's, not positive about his self-esteem and if there's one thing we don't have to worry about with Hannibal Lecter is an issue with self-esteem but yeah Matt Mickelson does a good job
4: and I have to say that the show it's interesting in the way that they work in lines of dialogue as you're watching it I just watched an episode where they made a reference to the um old spice cologne that Will was wearing but really to me Will Graham isn't treated as well as he should be I Like I said, I turned it off after a few episodes just because Will is so close to Lecter, but he doesn't recognize Lecter for being what he is, and I could kind of get that for a little while, like when – Lector, when Will was investigating the the case that brought him to Lector, I could kind of understand where he wouldn't pick up on who Lector is for a little bit, but to stretch this relationship out for so long and for him to not recognize Lector for the, the beast that he is, even though you know Will is very close to that and one does not necessarily want to look in the mirror and see Lector's face staring back at you, I think that that could only go on for so long. I would like to think that Will Graham is a smart character because he does seem to be portrayed as smarter especially in manhunter i will say
5: that uh even though i haven't watched the show like at all i do like i said i do plan to marathon it the hints i've gotten is by the end of season two the playing field has changed considerably enough that you realize that the relationship you thought you were seeing cannot last too much longer and the end in- it might be leading into the friends become enemies part that you obviously would expect to happen at some point and also i do believe that i only listened to uh the audio novels of uh red dragon and silence of the lambs by the way silence of the lambs audio novel was done by kathy bates playing everybody and she did a rather interesting lecture. and also that includes the will graham comments that they conveniently left out of their conversations in silence of the lambs which implied that Will Graham's transition back to normality might have taken a little longer than Manhunter implied. Yeah, I
4: always, a friend of mine came up with the idea of what the third movie or book would be like. And to me, that was a lot better than what Hannibal was. And his idea was that Hannibal is out in the world and enable for Clarice to go and catch him. She has to team up with Will Graham, and maybe he snaps at some point. He is close to being down that line so that there's that whole ambiguity about is Graham actually trying to help or hinder the investigation. I thought that kind of team up between Graham and Starling would have really worked well, but unfortunately we never get yeah. that, nor will we ever, uh it sounds like with the whole rights issues. As a comic book geek, that
5: feels like exactly what the third story should have been
4: we just uh focused all of our energies on hannibal and doing that whole idea that we talked about earlier where we remove any shred of mystery that there might have been with this character we want to a, expose a freddy every moment of his life yes a freddy
5: kruegered him he went from being this malevolent force to being the focal point making jokes about the power glove
1: i don't give a shit where the stuff i love comes from i just love the
3: stuff i love
4: yeah, and just him in Red Dragon with all of the guys bringing the the food to his prison cell and just this you know refined uh, moment where he's listening to the symphony and all that. It's just like, really?
5: This just is way you st- you too start, much. You start drifting away from this is a highly refined cultured individual who happens to be a serial killer to a serial killer who happens to be very well refined.
4: One thing I liked about Manhunter and, uh, well, just uh, William Peterson playing this Will Graham character is that he basically is playing that same character or a lot of aspects of that character – when he went on to be the producer and star of CSI, yeah. Will Graham being close to Gil Grissom just in name, but also in the way that he approached the character. And I found it funny when I was rereading Red Dragon that there's a bit in there about Graham being interested in the study of insects and how insects can be used to solve crimes, which is one of the first things that we get from Gil Grissom in CSI. And that whole section of uh, Manhunter where we have the note that the Tooth Fairy has sent to Hannibal Lecter and the way that we examine the note right. and look at it through these different lights and all this kind of stuff. It is To me, that is such the precursor oh, yeah. of CSI and all these
5: procedurals that we get Do today. you know the backstory of how CSI came to be? No, do tell. The guy who was running CBS at the time was named Les Moonbees. This is covered in the book called Desperate Networks by Bill Carter, the same guy who did The Late Shift. About the uh, Leno Letterman fiasco. So he gets access to everybody talking about it. And he had been pitching this show for years after years after years. Les Moonbees had had a holding deal with William Peterson that whenever I find the right TV project with you, will you consider it? Because he loved him in To Live in Die L.A. And he loved him in um, Manhunter. And it seemed like Peterson kind of just said, eh if I can't play the parts I want to play, then I ain't got to do this acting thing. And he kind of drifted away. But the guy who created CSI said one of his biggest influences was that five-minute scene in Manhunter, which is showing just procedure, just how exciting they got it. And the way, did you notice how every time they would cut to uh, Graham and, and Farina running away, you felt that sense of urgency of, we've got to get this done before Lecter figures it out and how he's going to give them how he's going to warn the tooth fairy. That is kind of the template for CSI right there. Just to stretch it out to an hour. Apparently Peterson is back in the world of the theater and
4: we tried to get him for this episode, but unfortunately he just never really got back to us, but his person was great. <laughs> his his person was very quick to respond to
5: the emails. So That's that always was fantastic. When you at least have a, a press officer who goes, I'm glad you're still interested. <laughs> because I would have loved to get his thoughts on this, because I've heard man isn't the easiest director to work for, because he will make you as an actor stand there and wait as he gets his lighting and his composition and everything else right. Strikes me a little bit of the Ridley Scott school of you're a tool to my ultimate goal. All right,
4: we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Don't ever say a word about this, he said.
1: Just go to bed and pretend that you're asleep. The next morning, my parents explained to me that uh, Grandpa had gone away on business and had left me a very special kiss goodbye. Are you out of your mind? I'm sorry, Dave. The guy said it was an emergency. I don't care what the story is. I'm on the air. Anything you say, up. Enough talk. Let's hear our theme all the way through tonight. Until Wednesday, then, this has been Etcetera, and I've been your host, David Stabler.
3: That's right. We're back next week in a discussion of The King of Marvin Gardens, where we'll have an interview with Oscar, Golden Globe, Emmy, Golden Mitten, award-winning actress and native Detroiter Ellen Burstyn. Now, before we go, I want to thank our special guest co-host, Mr. X, for joining us. Now, Mr. X, for all the folks at home who would like to know what's up with you and where can they find out?
5: I'm a guy that talks about media from my perspective. I do it with video sometimes. I do it on podcasts. I do a lot of live riffs. That mst 3 k comment didn't come out of nowhere. Very big formative part of my being because I do like the idea of making you laugh while also making you think about film. And I do projects at dot MrXOnline.com, and every now and then I pop up on projects at com.
4: Well, hey, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it, and we will have links over to your stuff at our website, Projection-Booth.com. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. If you want to uh, return the favor... Go on over to our iTunes link and where you can leave us a review and some stars if you haven't already. And we've been getting a lot of new listeners lately, which we really appreciate. So I just want to encourage everyone who's new to go over and give us a review if you haven't already. Maybe go over to the website, click on that Donate button, give us some of your hard-earned cash after we've been talking here for frickin' three hours about <laughs> about Manhunter. so. Alright, so yeah, every review helps us take over the world.
5: One of us, one of us. And now, please rise for our opening
3: hymn In the Garden of Eden by Iron Butterfly. <laughs>
1: God of a Peter, honey, don't you know that I'm loving you, in a God of a Peter, baby, don't you know that I'll always the true, oh, won't you come with me, and I'll take my Don't you know that I'm loving you, and i gonna another Vita, oh baby, don't you know that I'll the truth? true. Mr. Larms, I admire it enormously. Oh, what a cunning boy you are, Will. I'm sick of you crazy sons of bitches, Lecter. You got something to say, say it. I want to help you. You'd be more comfortable if you relax with yourself. We don't invent our natures. They're issued to us, along with our lungs and pancreas and everything else. Why fight it? Fight what? Did you really feel so depressed after you shot Mr. Garrett Jacob Hobbs I didn't know you then, but I think you probably did. But it wasn't the act that got you down, was it? Didn't you really feel so bad because killing him felt so good? And why shouldn't it feel good? It must feel good to God. He does it all the time. (laughs) God's terrific. He dropped a church roof on 34 of his worshippers last Wednesday night in Texas as they were groveling through a hymn to his majesty. Don't you think that felt good? Why does it feel good, Dr. Lecter? It feels goodwill because God has power. And if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. God's a champion. He always stays ahead. He got 140 Filipinos in one plane crash last month. Remember that earthquake in Italy last spring?